Hello, dearest listeners, and welcome to the Longevity and Lifestyle podcast, where I invite pioneers and thought leaders in their respective fields to give us the strategies, tools, and practices to live better and help us reach our true potential. Our guest today is Nick Potter, a long-standing osteopath, also trained in medical acupuncture, clinical director at the Princess Grace Hospital Orthopedic Center in London, and author of the book, The Meaning of Pain. Nick qualified from the British School of Osteopathy in 1993, and his extensive career spans co-founding the London Spine Clinic to working with elite athletes, professional golfers, tennis players, and Formula One race car drivers, as well as high goal polo players. Nick has worked as a human performance advisor for the Institute Biomedical Sports AV in Paris and V-Life, where he set up a state-of-the-art performance and biomechanics center. He consulted to Jaguar, Jordan, and Prost racing teams. He also helped to establish a human performance tracking measurement tool with Weiss in Western Australia. Nick is fondly called Nick the Neck by colleagues due to his speciality in cervical spine injuries, as well as head, neck, and facial syndromes. Nick is passionate about the power of osteopathy and has a compelling vision for the future of medical healthcare. Nick, as I, fundamentally believe in making treatment fun and as easy as possible whenever possible. In this episode, we discuss the scientific art of osteopathy, what pain really is, the importance of breathing right, working in a global hedge fund on improving performance, hypermobility, the impact stress has on decision-making, resolving chronic pain, why the current healthcare system is failing our society, and more on Nick's colorful background that has led him to where he is today, helping his patients to alleviate pain and begin living to their fullest potential. On a side, more technical note, we had some Bluetooth headset issues, so the sound is suboptimal for the recording, but please bear with us, dear listener, as the content is truly insightful and lots of fun. Before we begin, please subscribe to the podcast to get your weekly dose of longevity inspiration and leave a comment to let me know what you think. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much and please enjoy. Welcome to the Longevity and Lifestyle podcast, Nick. It's such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. So there's a quote that I'd like to start with from you, and I'm going to read it out. Stress is the biggest driver to illness in the world, and 40 to 60 percent of people presenting to a GP or physician have a stress-related disorder. Doctors know this, but they only have seven minutes with you, and the quickest and easiest thing is to prescribe a tablet. I'm offering an answer that isn't drug-related. It's about recognizing what stresses you and understanding it. Can you talk a bit more about this, Nick? Yeah, it's a big subject, but I'll try and keep it in a nutshell. Maybe I should just wind back a little bit. The reason I feel vaguely qualified to talk about stress is that I work in a hedge fund. I have done for 10 years, looking at stress relating to how people make decisions. And trading Mm -hmm. floors are interesting places because there are guys staring into a big load of chaos, all the markets. And... They're required to place glorified bets on something that they, you know, hypothesize is going to come right. So they're going to back a horse, as it were. But they're large sums of money and the downsides are big and hopefully the upsides are bigger. But when they look into that chaos, they become mentally stressed. Mm-hmm. And that's what's quite interesting. And we looked at what happens in their bodies when they become stressed. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely fascinating. First mm-hmm. thing to mention is that they don't know. So if we did mood scores with them, we said, mm-hmm. how do you feel? They'd say, no, I feel fine. You know, I'm looking at it. This is what I do every day. And so, mm-hmm. well, that's interesting because 
your pulse rate, your heart rate variability, your breathing rate, they're all telling me, rather like a lie detector, they're betraying you to yourself. And maybe that's something we could look at and monitor because you always have a physiological response. And the nice thing is that that's universal to every human organism being on the planet. Everybody has the same stress response because stress, in fact, is a response. It is not a thing. So it's not the stress or the thing that's stressing you. It's how you respond to your environment. And there are many elements and factors of your environment that stimulate them. So it could be a bad boss. It could be an unhappy marriage. It could be just, you know, the markets are bad that day. Or it can be the length of time you've been under stress. But very quickly, we discovered that when you stress people, they begin to change. They go into what we call sickness health or health changes. So they begin to show the signs of this in their health. So the classic responses are that people can get gastric reflux, they can get mm -hmm. neck and back pain, they can get visual disturbances, they can get rapid heartbeats, etc. They get skin reactions, you know, all sorts of extraordinary manifestations mm -hmm. of how stress affects you. It tends to be when stress has affected you for a long time rather mm -hmm. than just overnight, because we're designed very cleverly to run from the saber-toothed tiger when he attacks us, but we yeah. just don't want him doing it every day. That's exhausting yeah. and tiring. So most yeah. of us live our lives due to various elements of our environment as if we're not just roaming the plains and we're getting chased but actually that we just know the tigers in the hedge mm -hmm. that's probably a better way of putting it so it's not that we're immediately going to be eaten but it's mm -hmm. that there's the constant threat of doing so yeah. and the problem is that that's universal across everybody and believe it or not it's actually independent of personality so it doesn't matter if you're a psychopath or a lovely introspective individual in the corner when you get chased because we all get eaten no matter what we're yeah. like you're going to have the same response. And that mm -hmm. was something that was quite original that I brought to the fund and said, look, I think we're wasting too much time on psychology, which is useful. But what psychology tends to set is mm -hmm. the filter through which you see the world. Mm -hmm. okay? So in a sense, how quickly you're stressed by the environment. So anything that changes the threshold for which you yeah. produce your response, but the response is always the same. Yeah. So we know that when people are showing these changes in their physiological parameters, we know that they're becoming stressed. So that's a baseline. And we looked at what it did to their nervous systems and so on. And what was gobsmacking to find was that not only did the cortisol, which is a stress hormone, mm -hmm. which we produce automatically in the response to stress, not only did it get released, but it was actually correlating exactly to, I mean, 0 0.9, I mean, it was extraordinary, mm -hmm. with the fluctuations or the volatility, as we call it, in the markets. And nobody's wow. sort of kind of seen this before. And we did that for 60 traders. And so it was reliable. But also, well, it's not a huge global study, but it's more than most people have done. And yeah. it was really quite effective and astounding. What was more concerning mm -hmm. was that we also happened to be testing for inflammatory markers. These are cells like cytokines in COVID. They cause big reactions in people and they activate systems. And we couldn't believe that a thing called interleukin 1B, which is a funny little cytokine marker, which is actually pro-inflammatory, but it's also pro-tumorous. It tends mm -hmm. to switch on genes that can cause cancer was also tracking. Wow. I mean, it was, so I said to this guy, do you realize you are witnessing your immune system tracking volatility? And they went, no way, no way. And I said, yeah, that's what we're saying. And I said, I've never seen it before. And in fact, I don't think many people have. And I put this to rheumatologists who study this. And they go, God, uh -huh. that's unbelievable. You've actually correlated. Yeah, I said, to the same degree as the cortisol did. What it says is that when people are constantly, and I, I have to be careful about using chronic because I think chronic to some people means really bad. What it actually yeah. means is over three months, let's say. Constant, yeah. Constant. When you are constantly under stress, you mm -hmm. undergo really deep and fundamental 
changes in your physiology, your DNA, you know, everything at your cellular level. We know that you look at presidents, for example, who've been, you know, under pressure, Tony Blair, you know, all these people. Obama's here. Obama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, you know, they look baggy around the eyes and you can see they just look, they looked, they looked aged. aged. And that is the effect of cortisol. Mm-hmm. And so um, I began to look into this and I saw it again in my practice life, which is where I particularly tend to specialize in chronic pain, mm-hmm. which is pain that, you know, has been manifested in people's bodies for much longer than the injury itself could have caused. So we say, why is that? And the stuff that brings in daily musculoskeletal pain is this response to stress because it takes it out particularly in your breathing mechanism and your breathing mechanism uses more energy and so on. So the reason my slogan, if you like, which is that 40 to 60 percent, the reason that margin is very big is because it depends on which country you're in and even where you are within countries, because obviously some areas which are very deprived will have more stress mm-hmm. and net wealth areas will have less. So but in general, in that range, it was gobsmacking to me the data. Which, by the way, because I'd written this book, I had gone and spent hours reading fascinating stuff that's out there that sadly nobody will ever read. You know, even PhDs as a joke, they say that you know, the average number of people who read your PhD is seven, one of which will be your mother. You know? yeah. And the study that will get locked away in some esoteric journal of which there are way too many. So none of us yeah. can get to read it all. But I, what I learned, and I've just got one of those brains that does it, I kind of like linking stuff. And I realized, you know, this isn't actually, it doesn't need to directly call it to see that it's, it's really obvious that this is causing the problem. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to GP colleagues of mine and said, you know, out of 40 patients you see in a day, how many of them are you doing something medically significant for? You know, how many mm-hmm. are real disease? And they said, five. I'm going, wow. Time. You know, yeah. the rest is lifestyle, abusing themselves, eating, drinking, smoking, mm-hmm. unhappiness at home, you know, these things. So it's stress. And the doctors kind of know this very often. It's not that they're malpracticing. It's just if you have seven to 10 minutes as an average number of time to see a patient, you can't dig into it. And it's much mm-hmm. easier. And they, they want gratification. They say, you know, I'm, I'm ill. I mean, I need treating. Help me. And it's like, OK, well, here's a medication. Here's a pill. Because, yeah. And I think the thing that's worth mentioning here, and it's not as if it's a sort of conspiracy, but I've also worked in around drug companies and so on. Mm-hmm. And what is very concerning, and we saw this with the opiate crisis, certainly, mm-hmm. is that I'm afraid don't always think that pharmacology companies are your friend. You know, they're not busy out there being heroes all the time. This is a market. It's money. And there's no money in curing people. It's a horrible truth, but there isn't. You know, no. Make everybody better enough. And yeah, then I mean, look, fasting is free, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've also got to look at how many diseases, in inverted commas, that we're treating mm-hmm. that actually aren't disease. I mean, look at aging. You guys are obviously very important. But if you look at the bell curve distribution of age now, especially in Western culture, we're all living ridiculously long lives, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's great to a point. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be, I mean, at 90, if I'm decrepit, I'm quite happy to go and push up the yeah, babies. Yeah, but I think the point is to live over. well. I want to be that's the point. when I'm and that, that's my point. So I want to be at 60 being hopefully live, mm-hmm. free of arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. But I think that we've also got to look at for example, the NHS in this country is rapidly becoming broken. But, you know, it was never designed to be treating all of these conditions all the time with so many. It was designed really to be somewhere you went for important operations and big diseases, you know, and the rest was managed in the community. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing all these kind of multi-stratified influences that are happening on society, which is dissociation from each other. We don't connect anymore because at the heart of a lot of this, every day in our lives, as we used to since the turn of the century, we don't face existential threat. Now, we've got sustainability, I grant you. But, you know, it's still kind of out there, isn't it? I mean, like Afghanistan, you know, we saw these poor soldiers coming back limbless. And we go, oh, poor Herb, his poor mom, his poor wife, his poor, you know, poor him. But then it kind of, we moved on. It didn't affect us immediately, although it was happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that because we don't have that in our lives, 
it's done several things. One is we've got too comfortable to a certain mm -hmm. extent. You know, we're a bit mm -hmm. bored. We're doing a lot of navel gazing and stressing about things we really shouldn't be. But also, going back to the stress thing, the marker by which you judge a stressful event in your life mm -hmm. has got to be judged by what your previous life expectancy is. Now, if you've had you know, and managed a set of things, like you've gone and worked, as I have, you know, in Angola, which is a genuinely dangerous place, and, mm -hmm. you know, we had to fend off diseases and attackers and gorillas and this sort of thing. Coming to live in London is a walk in the park, and you're going, what do you mean London's a dangerous place? You know, <laughs> but we're all growing up, and our kids are safer, Angola, yeah, yeah. Yeah, less safer, healthier, more available to opportunity. There's more availability of opportunity than we've ever seen ever in the history of man. Ever, yeah. ever, ever. And yeah. yet we are more stressed about our children going out on the streets. We bubble wrap them. We helicopter parent them. Mm -hmm. And we set up a low threshold mm -hmm. and tolerance of stress because we don't expose them to it. And as parents mm -hmm. teach them to navigate the chaos to a certain mm -hmm. extent, mm -hmm. then we're not setting them up to face their futures. We're setting them up to be anxious balls of fear. Very and that's true. what I'm seeing in my own kids and in you know, other people's kids. And it's just, I had a lady in this morning and she, she said, well, you know, it's just all the crime. And I go, what crime? London? It's the safest city in the world other than Amsterdam or something, you know, I mean, so, because, yes, we get a bit of knife crime, that's mainly in gangs. Well, I don't see you, you know, peddling drugs. Hanging out with the gangs, yeah. Hanging out with the gang. And mm -hmm. the problem is, we're letting that intolerance to stress. You're making mm -hmm. that, you know, that margin, that bar, yeah. very low. So yeah. constantly things are stressing us. And, and, and the media sick. as well, right? Real. I mean, the media with fear mongering, I mean, it's what sells oh, and, I mean, you know, social yeah. media, things like that. And the thing is that with the algorithms and the social media, I'm sure you've seen the social dilemma, they're tracking you. So if you yeah. are spending more than a minute reading an article on rapists, then that's going to start tracking you everywhere. And you think that's everywhere as well, unless you know better, right? So Well, and also the worst thing is the algorithms are trained to show you more of what you were searching for in the Correct. process. So you get Correct. sent literally down, Alice, down the rabbit hole. You know, she yeah. suddenly's like, oh my God, everybody's threatening everybody, you know. And then you go to Netflix. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am gobsmacked how much dark stuff, you know. And my teenage kids love this, you know, because it's sensationalist and it's exciting for all those reasons. But I remember the other day, my daughter, we were watching Luther, you know, great series, but it's dark. It's serial killers, you know, every week, apparently, okay. you know, they, they knock up <laughs> everywhere. And she said, oh, Dad, could you hold it? I need to go to the laboratory. So I said, yeah, okay, hold on. And as she went out under her breath, she said, oh, she said, God, people are so effed up. And I just went, what? And she said, well, you know this. I said, no, darling, this is the point. This doesn't it's happen. Netflix. Yeah. Right? It's Netflix. Yeah. And yeah. this is a sensible 21-year-old, high-educated young lass. But her perception is, because mm -hmm. she's had no contextual experience outside that, that this yeah. is what goes on in the world. Well, I'd be terrified. And that's a really interesting point because also post-COVID, right? So where everyone was just looking at screens as well. If you look at sort of the teenagers, early 20s that have spent the best part of the last few years watching screens, like what is their perception of the world and reality? Yeah, that's absolutely. it. COVID is a really good example because it is the first thing that we thought was potentially existentially threatening to us. You know, mm -hmm. Despite the fact that, and I don't want to belittle anybody's illnesses, etc., but let's get a handle on this, right? For 97 plus percent, whatever that percentage, it's up in the high 90s. Yeah. COVID has been a deeply uneventful or non-eventful disease mm. either to have or to navigate. Okay, mm. Because on the whole, it was generally only affecting a small part of the population, the very elderly, yeah. the unwell, the hypermobile, you know. And that's tragic. But old people are old. 85-year-old people are going mm. to be less well. You know, they're yeah. not going to have as good immune systems. 
And ironically, I found in my practice that they were comfortable with that. It was kind of us that were purging ourselves. Oh, my God, old people are dying. It's like, well, actually, the, the fit and the well ones, interestingly, aren't. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the ones in nursing homes are tragic, too. But your average life expectancy in a nursing home in this country is between nine and 18 months. And oh, what wow. does kill you in the end is pneumonia. Mm -hmm. That's what you die of. You don't die of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. You become increasingly immobile. I've worked in Australia. I worked in geriatric health. And I actually loved it. I didn't think I would, but it was a thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was always, we used to call it the old man's friend. Pulmonary pneumonia was what eventually mm -hmm. got you. Because if you become static, you don't breathe, mm -hmm. and your systems are shutting down, bugs grow in your lungs, and you get pneumonia. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's a very tolerable end, because people mm -hmm. then give you lots of opiates and morphines. You kind of go off into a wafty haze. And mm -hmm. it just takes its course. And I think we've got to be a little bit more honest about that. We've got to be more honest about what we can expect. And for people like you, you know, prosthetizing that you can be a healthier older age. I mean, I'd like to raise up Captain Tom, right? Do you remember the lovely old guy who's an ex-military ex guy who's mm -hmm. now been decorated and knighted and all this sort of business? Well, let's look at what he did. He was 100 years old. Yeah. He was sitting in a chair, pretty slumped, you know. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, he was very deaf and he couldn't hear. And in fact, he was slurring speech and, he, you know, he was great to talk to him. We all loved him because he was all that avant-garde character. And then one day his daughter said, mm -hmm. let's get him up and make him walk a thousand yards. That's basically what he did. Okay. On his Zimmer frame, off he goes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And as I watched the videos, it was fascinating, right? So this is the principle of rehab. Suddenly, his muscles got stronger. Mm -hmm. And with his stronger, his posture got better. He started standing up. And so now because he's being better. multiply stimulated sensorially, you know, his eyes, his ears, whatever, because he's now getting all this attention, he's getting laws, and he's getting conversations, and he's no longer disconnected, he's not sitting in the armchair waiting to die, and suddenly he's got cause and meaning, and he's moving forward. Even at 100, mm -hmm. this guy became more linguistically capable, you know, he became verbally much more empowered, he could hear better, literally, mm -hmm. because he suddenly, you know, well, well, couldn't, you know, all that had gone. And I watched him, and suddenly when he receives his medal from the Queen, he doesn't need his Zimmer frame anymore. It's mm -hmm. there as a reassurance, but there is this guy. And what did he do? Did he take tablets? No. Yeah. Did he do it? What did he do? He walked like mm -hmm. Lazarus. He got up, <laughs> and he developed his muscles, and then his brain switched on, and all the little neural membranes in his brain switched on, and went, oh, there is actually a reason to be around anymore. And, oh, well, let's learn about the world. You know, so actually all these little cross bridges happened, and his hearing got better, and his vision got better, probably. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But, you know, he switched on. Yeah. And all that did it was exercise, and nobody mm -hmm. really talks about it. But mm -hmm. actually that's what happened. That's a very valid point. Yeah. You could ask you why didn't his daughter do it when he was 90, but that's another question. <laughs> but I think, you know, this is what Early we need. Never. <laughs> Yeah. And COVID for some people has been amazing because I've seen patients of mine who really had become kind of slow shuffling, you know, overweight, mm -hmm. but also the mood. And it was always moaning. And oh, yeah, well, you know, if it wasn't for the hip and the arm, suddenly I said, look, how about going getting some Nordic sticks? Get out there with your wife. It's how you can meet your friends. And this is the sort of story I love telling because they literally I've got a couple who used to walk on Hampstead Heath. You know, they're, they're 92. Mm -hmm. and she when I first said she had hip pain and back pain I got rid of all that for her. I said right now Lazarus you know go and rise up get out there she now walks every day she's now bought a dog and she's mm -hmm. now thinking of doing a half marathon at oh, really at and this is the woman who was really? miserable and bad tempered mm -hmm. and everybody was crap you know mm -hmm. oh everybody's so in my day you know suddenly boom happy pills come on I'm seeing the opportunity in the world instead of the negativity. Yeah. These are not young people. Brilliant. But I've sadly got people at 50 who should mm -hmm. be doing that. Those are the people we need to be speaking to.
Yeah. And, you know, I know what it's like. I'm 52 now and I try and stay slim, fit and well. I have a back injury from my old rugby days, which I have to keep mm-hmm. strong. But actually, I think, you know, well, wait a minute. That was meant to be bothering me 10 years ago and it hasn't. And I was meant to have had surgery and I haven't. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bit of self-regulation. Is it a pain in the butt? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. doing your core boring. Well, you have to do you know, something, right? Yeah, you, exactly. You, you can't just sit on the, on the sofa and hope that it gets better by itself. Yeah. But there's a lovely study, which I must dig out somewhere, which I think is important to mention, which was done by the Americans. It was hugely statistically viable because it, I think it was 200,000 people done across mm-hmm. the country. And they did a retrospective study. Well, it's kind of prospective and retrospective in the sense that what they did is they looked at all of the chronic diseases, so heart disease, mm-hmm. chest disease, COPD, you know, arthritis, you name it. And they said, let's take all the drugs that treat those mm-hmm. and measure their outcome over time. Mm-hmm. And they set a time point, I think it was over a period of 12 years. Mm-hmm. And they looked back and they said, there was only one thing, one intervention that showed a high correlation of outcome, i.e. it worked. Okay, mm-hmm. so, you know, statins, pretty low, all mm-hmm. these different things. None of them were over about 40%, I think. 75% was just two things, muscle strength. Mm-hmm. and ability to walk, which is effectively exercise. In fact, they mm-hmm. were co-correlated. That was a 75% outcome, had the greatest outcome. And that was on cancer, not just, you know, chronic diseases, cancer, yeah. diabetes, heart disease. Yeah. Right? And, and it's so simple. I mean, yeah, I think that that's such a, a phenomenal study that, you know, it should be more well-known. Yeah. People just simple, but getting out for a walk and moving and actually using your body for what it's for you know, yeah. and people don't go running anymore. Children used to, you know, run everywhere if possible. You know, we, we just That's were it. so sedentary and hip flexors. Well, we don't let them out because they're going to be either raped or beaten up, killed or sold to slavery, as far as most of a lot of people are concerned. You know, I mean, and I don't mean to joke, but it really is. I had a wonderful pediatric consultant who trained me, who I rooted, sadly, he's died now. And he was quite ruthless. If he had a, a young child between, you know, two to seven in his room, a uh, girl or boy, he would whip up the front of their trousers to their knees and expose their lower legs. And if he said, if they don't see at least four bruises on each shin, uh-huh. you give the mum a hard time because these kids are not playing. Mm-hmm. And he said, they're not playing, they're not developing mm-hmm. in multiple dimensions. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so good. And I have a quite a big, busy uh, pediatric practice. And I can tell you, sadly, I can't remember the last time I did see a bruise on a child. Really? And well, that is my, more mine have got quite a bunch, but we've been away. But I think also, and this will be your expertise, but, you know, having even walking around barefoot, but for children to walk around barefoot, we once had a, a physio here helping one of my daughters with something. And he said, yeah, you don't want your child to have city feet. And I had to laugh. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, there's a clear difference between children born in the countryside and children born in a city. In the city, they're always wearing shoes and socks. They don't develop their feet properly and have later back issues versus the country kids running around barefoot. They're actually using their foot as it's meant to be. And I thought that that was really sort of an obvious thing, but again, not really talked about that well. But you know, it was extraordinary. I mean, yeah, I mean, shoes are sensory deprivation devices for feet. That's it. And they, your feet are incredible pieces of kit. They are your primary sensory system with the floor and they measure everything they have the five senses touch temperature vibration sense Mm -hmm. position sense and so on and they feed that back to your brain Mm -hmm. and the problem is that our modern societies there's been a disjunct if you like really between our mental and physical bodies and the mistake i mean descartes did this and in fact you know probably until the late 80s modern medicine Mm -hmm. was still on the principles of descartes that you kind of had your head and then your body and that they were kind of you know there were two separate entities but we now know through studies of the nervous system that you know from the very moment that a child is born 
all the little twitches that you see them do, all of putting out a proboscis, you know, even just nosing and pouting and latching onto the mothers, is a constant sensory process and the way that we map the world onto mm. our cortices. And that's what people don't realize is that we spend two thirds of our brain function processing visual input, which has mm -hmm. become way too dominant because, of course, mm -hmm. we're on screens all the time. Yeah. But you only know that you are who you are and where you are in the world. In fact, consciousness is made up of the fact that the other system, which is all the touch and all the other five senses, reinforce what you're seeing is to be true. Mm -hmm. So a good example, if I said to you, well, right now, you know, Claudia, we're sitting in a room together and, you know, actually, I'm a ghost and you go, no, you're not. And I go, well, I am. And then I started mm -hmm. worrying. and You think, is this possible? You know, well, how would you reinforce it? You touch me. Touch, yeah? Yeah. Because otherwise you don't know I really exist. I mean, it is. That's why you start doubting. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm only seeing him visually. I mean, maybe he is a hurt. Avatar. Snake, you know. <laughs> Avatar. So when we talk about mapping, mm -hmm. you need your physical body. And in fact, we know that in schools now, particularly in this country, we've taken away playgrounds i mean it's an it's just mind-blowing to me yeah. that you could do that as a removal of education to children and you can increase children by 20 percent. you can increase iq by mm -hmm. teaching them to learn to use their physical bodies that was the principles mm -hmm. of um montessori montessori thank you so, which in my when i was a young man was kind of oh, a bit avant-garde a bit out there a bit airy but now mm -hmm. it's just fundamental to education yeah. it's taken that long. and it's so easy for them to learn that way as well right the sandpaper and all the rest of it yeah exactly. um, it's a neurosensory process and that's what i mean i mean again swaddling children why would you do that and there's no evidence you go and look it up you know that we had the contented baby when i had my kids and it was all about eat this and do this and if you don't do this you're an evil person and i just went why and she said, you're gonna need to swaddle your babies because it's like the womb it's like no, they've left the womb yeah, and left. they need to learn to navigate the world. And the early form of that mm. is to be multisensorially excited, you know, and it's like, oh, no, but it's correct. And then I think the excuse was that Indians, you know, papoose their children, Navajo Indians put them in, yeah, they put them because they're nomads and they need to move <laughs> around the world. So they put them in a papoose because they need to have their hands free. They don't sleep them in them, you know. Yeah. And again, going back to stress, right, I see a lot of pregnant ladies mm -hmm. and I reckon 90 percent, it's an arbitrary figure, but a majority of the market of pregnancy mm -hmm. is literally based on fear. Mm -hmm. Okay, So I went with my goddaughter to John Lewis and we mm -hmm. looked at all the car seats. Mm -hmm. And there was the good old Brit Axe that I had when we had babies. I think there was only five on the market. You know, my so far my kids are still alive, you know. And they go from like a hundred pounds to three thousand. And I think the one that was well, it wasn't that much, it was about but I think it was nearly nine hundred pounds. And I said, Oh, what does this one do? Said, oh, it's got an airbag. It's got an airbag. Wow, that's cool. Oh, I didn't really? realize. And I thought, I think I'll ask you something. I mean, I know you're only a salesman, but A, what's the evidence that babies die in car accidents? And by the mm. way, it's really, 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 really small. So much so that it's probably not even, it's an aberration. Do you know what I mean? Because, the, because uh -huh. actually car accidents are all time low. Babies who are involved in accidents, then the car seat was never going to save them anyway, bless them. And in fact, the amount of babies who are in it is less than nothing. Mm. So then I said, I'd love to know, how do you test an airbag on a baby's face? <laughs> They went, well, I don't know. I'm just saying the problem. I said, no, no. What you're doing is telling my goddaughter, who hasn't got the money to have it, that she's a lesser person than parent because she's not buying the thousand pound item. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, oh, my God, you know, babies die in crashes, which they don't really. And secondly, you know that an airbag is a good thing. Well, in my view, I've seen the car accidents where people's airbags are off and they take their noses off. Yeah, mm -hmm. they survive. Don't get me wrong. But mm -hmm. I'd love to know how in testing you actually got to do that because... Mm -hmm. I don't think they did. I think they had plastic dolls, you know. Yeah. So somebody somewhere thought this was a good idea. And because we had airbags in cars, it probably got through some testing system because it's quite a good idea and it's safe. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, but, you know, 
Not sure about that one. And so, but that's what I mean about the fear. So it's selling to you on, if you don't do this, you will be either less a person, less a mother, or you put your baby at risk. Mm -hmm. Rubbish. Yeah, it's fear-mongering, especially new-time mothers. It's such a life change. And I think for many companies, I think it's such an opportunity to actually target women in that phase because they're completely adjusting themselves or thinking, okay, now it's not about me anymore. It's about a child and it's just marketed at them. And what works best is fear, right? So you're and not a good mother if you don't do this. So you start believing it. Yeah. And you're catching a woman at the most neurochemically vulnerable, <laughs> but apart from either her, probably her period or menopause, she will uh -huh. ever experience, right? You know, uh -huh. even I see all these lovely corporate women that come see me and they go, oh my God, it's true. I've got brain mush. You know, it's universal and it happens because you uh -huh. get all the fundamental changes towards caring and empathy that you need for your child. So they're literally going, oh, lovely. Right. You know, <laughs> pregnant lady. They see the bump. It's like, oh. <laughs> and I, I remember when I was little, I mean, you know, my mum used to drive us from the back of a car. Myself, my sister used to have games sliding back and forth. I mean, there were no car seats to be heard of. And we thought it was a fun game. And, you know, thankfully, we weren't in any car accidents. But, you know, there were many, many years where car seats weren't even a thing. Yeah. And we were all going to be told we were going to die of lead poisoning because we all had, you know, lead in the paint on the walls. And it's like, OK, well, you know, my liver's still you know, survived that one. You know, we did break bones. That's how you learn not to do the silly things in life, you know, yeah. and, and, but you get better. They heal. That was a warning <laughs> system. Exactly. You know. Nick, you've been humbled by some of your clients. I'd love to have you talk a bit about that experiences and the wealth of clients that you've seen. What are some of the most impacting experiences you've had? That's a really good question. I think, sadly, there's too many of them, but I think I can give you probably one or two examples. One was... Uh, yeah, this is a good example because I think it's a kind of sort of multidimensional. This is a nice, very nice lady. She's Jewish. It matters for reasons I'll qualify. Came to me, very self-deprecating lady, kept going on about how neurotic she was and how she looked up, you know, gave her. And she had this neck problem uh, that wouldn't go away and she had headaches and various things. And, but I noticed that when she was talking to me, she very slightly looked to me sort of offset. And I said, oh, mm -hmm. is your vision all there? And she said, well, actually, I'm blind in my left eye. So I said, oh, okay, yeah. that's quite a big thing. How's that? Well... She said, I was very lucky to survive my birth. I was quite premature. And in fact, they never gave me a birth certificate. They sort of kind of wrote me off at birth. And my mother wow. kind of just thought I was going to die. And, you know, anyway, I made it. I think she was four pounds when she left the hospital. Wow. And so I said, so when did you lose the vision? She said, well, it was all very weird. I don't know. It was something to do around my birth. And I said, okay. She said, well, I went to school when I was two and was behaving strangely. And I wouldn't settle down and whatever. And then they suddenly discovered that I had a bit of a, you know, squint. Mm -hmm. But a... You know, so they put a patch over my eye. What they didn't do is test whether or not she actually could see through the squinted eye, which of course could. So they covered her good eye. Okay? <laughs> so she had less than 10, well, I think it's 5% vision in the bad eye. She's basically blind. So she used to try and sit there and kind of do this to, to look at the board and see what anybody wanted her to do. I mean, it's tra honestly, it's tragic. So then somebody said, I think there might be something wrong. So they took her to an ophthalmic surgeon who looked into her eyes and said, oh, that's very strange, very rare condition, need to write this up. And it turned out it wasn't. It was a piece of plastic. And wow. to this day, she doesn't know how the plastic got into her eye, embedded itself in her retina, and then she underwent a whole lot of scarring or something. And nobody seemed to answer the question, sort of, so how does a baby get a wow. piece of plastic embedded without bleeding or without somebody raising the alarm? So it's all, and they think it was the top of a cap. I said, there's no way you can go that and it will bury itself in the back. Anyway, so this girl's grown up with all this adversity Lack of intellect was anyway, but then she sort of says to me, well, I do this really weird thing in bed. I always have to insist on lying in the middle of a single bed, and my husband thinks it's really weird. I said, well, 
that's really obvious why. I said, well, because from an early age, if you couldn't see half the world, then everything on the left side of your world is threatening to you. Your nervous system can't see it. So it's got to be constantly vigilant to it. So it's why you twitch all the time. It's why you can't keep still. But also, if you're lying in a bed, mm-hmm. you need to know where the left bit is. And am I going to fall out of bed? So she says, yeah, I do. I kind of use my hands to work out where the side is. I said, there you go. So that makes sense. Oh, I just thought I was weird. I said, no, I don't think you're weird. I think you're incredible. And, and then she went on about, oh, yeah, my kids get really close because when they walk on my left side, I just get really ratty. And I said, well, because you're programmed to protect them. And if you can't see what's going on over here, mm-hmm. and you don't always know what you're not seeing, yeah, it's going to agitate your nervous system. And that's why you're tense. And that's why you hyperventilate, which is causing mm-hmm. your neck pain, and your headache, whatever, you know. But this woman who had gone through life really with very low self-esteem, basically thought she was a bit crap, neurotic, mm-hmm. lucky that some bloke had married her, you know. She just needed some confidence. And she's a different person now. I mean, she, now she understands what she's doing. But it was interesting because it wasn't until I probably raised it, probably crassly, but did nobody ask why you had a piece of plastic in your eye? Yeah. You know, I'd be looking at the nurse first. I think that's very sinister. And we do get sad cases where nurses do strange things. But, you know, to have this thing so embedded that you couldn't not bleed from your eye and the baby was screaming and howling and nobody reported it. Um, incredible. I mean, I assume this is, you know, well, a few years back, then. but... And I just think, actually, and it doesn't seem immediately obvious, but if you think about how she's had to navigate the world Mm -hmm. with her nervous system, how she's managed it, how she's had kids, she's found her way Mm -hmm. through it, she's got through an Mm -hmm. educational system, and parents who'd kind of given up on her, you know, I think she's done incredibly well. And I think that's why I love hearing people's stories, because it's a story, it's not just a life, it's a set of stories. And how she adapted. And you have to dig into it. I would never have known, you know. I could easily say, oh, yeah, give your neck a rub, off you go, you know, do a bit of this, and keep her coming 100 times, take a fee off her. But actually, mm-hmm. let's go and see why her muscles are so tense. Why does she offset her head? Why is she doing that? You know, that's tiring. How can you help her with it? Give her strategies, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Fantastic. I've never met that before. I don't know anything more interesting than people. I defy mm-hmm. anybody to tell me something more interesting than humans. Because they're a bunch of chaos walking around, governed by a few <laughs> rules of physics. You know, it's a yeah. miracle that we mm-hmm. even stand up straight. <laughs> and I think everyone has an interesting story, right? If you ask the right questions, then uh, people tend to open up. And speaking of necks, you have an interesting nickname, Nick the Neck. Where does that come from, Nick? That was nothing more than it rhymed, but actually I had a particular interest in cervical spine injury. I'm very interested in the neck because it's completely different to anywhere else in the spine, mainly because it holds the head on. It integrates you with the world. It mm. orientates your head in order to perceive and hear and these things. And also, I kind of defined a thing called the upper cervical syndrome, God, 20 years ago. Mm. I'm not by any means claiming it, but I kind of put it on the map a bit with that I studied it. And it's a very, very dangerous area of the neck at the top. And I learned the mm. techniques to use, you know, safely. And it causes, you know, migraine, headaches, dizziness, waftiness, disequilibrium, strange hearing changes, the relationships between the neck and jaw that we see a lot of people clench their teeth and get all sorts of strange. I think way too much surgery is done on jaws and it's completely unnecessary. So the integration really of the neck with the brain and also with your vestibular system, which is your balance system. So I was seeing some quite interesting, weird things coming in, which I had to navigate, negotiate, but it just kind of worked and it grew. And so, of course, it was going to see Nick the Neck. And of course, my name being Potter, it's either Nick the Neck or Harry, which is, you know, we haven't heard 50,000 times. But, I'm sure you've heard um, the yeah. But it sticks in people's head, you know, whatever. Yeah. Let's jump to the topic of osteopathy. You're a keen advocate of the scientific art of osteopathy, but for people who are perhaps unfamiliar with osteopathy, what it is exactly, what it is not, perhaps you can talk a little bit through what is osteopathy and the different advantages of it. Osteopathy. I love it. 
I do also wish we could get rid of this thing because it's an alternative therapy. I mean, there couldn't be more science mm. in osteopathy. And do you know why it's medical health companies? They want to keep us away from physio and right. things because we're Jesus sandals and wooden bead stuff and we're all a bit wacky. <laughs> and we use our hands. Oh my God, we touch people. I think it's very simple. I've actually been part of the governing body that we have kind of define osteopathy, which I always think is a bizarre one. I mean, define medicine, healing people. I don't know, you know. Basically, it's function, actually. It's really simple. We know we tried to write these big paragraphs. It's a system of system of diagnosis relating to musculoskeletal, blah, blah, blah. And in its loosest sense, that's right. But in real terms, what we do, mm-hmm. I can't change somebody's anatomy. You could argue that a surgeon can to a certain extent. So you can't change that. Mm-hmm. What you can do is change the way it, it functions. Mm-hmm. You know, nature knew Darwin, you know, dictated that everything that is in us was selected into us. It's meant to be there for a reason. It helps us in some way. We have a few vestigial things left over that sort of are being phased out genetically. But in real terms, you know, form is governed by function. You need to stand up and use your hands. Then the shoulders change positions and joints. You know, so, so we're slightly imperfectly, we've left our primates a little bit. But basically, osteopathy had three basic tenets. And in fact, the more old-fashioned you go back, the more beautiful it becomes, actually, in that it believed in things, what, what it called was the role of the artery was supreme, you know, which is that, yeah, circulation, supply, oxygen. You know, mm-hmm. The bottom line was, see if things are blocked. Well, you've got to remember that in our musculoskeletal system, that's not just muscles and tendons and ligaments, but through them, And integrally related with them are nerves, blood vessels, veins, Mm -hmm. you know, receptors that are buried in us. And they feed back into our nervous system and our nervous system analyzes them and then produces a suitable response. That's what we were primed to do. We were never primed as animals to think, actually. We were designed to move. Mm -hmm. The way I look at it is that neurologists are hardware specialists, or let's say neurosurgeons are hardware specialists. Mm -hmm. Neurologists are software specialists. And we kind of Mm -hmm. make those two links. We're the engineers in between. The next question we always get asked is, well, what's chiropractic and what's physiotherapy? The simple answer is they're morphing. They're becoming very similar because everybody realized that we all needed a bit of everything. And every chiropractor in the world and every physio in the world may be sitting there going, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're the evil man. The way I perceive it, maybe if you look at the historically, believe it or not, it started with osteopathy, actually, in Missouri with a guy called Andrew Taylor Still. And I've got a wonderful picture, I think a lot of us have, of him in a Quaker's hat, holding an enormous bone, you know, like he'd just sort of beaten somebody over examining it. And they were the original bone setters. And they were guys who had manipulative techniques they realized work. He, in fact, sadly, had lost, I think it was three children in a meningitis epidemic in the early 1800s. And he roamed around and he had a little group and they built up and whatever. And then somewhere along the line, the chiropractors broke off because they said, oh, it's not all about soft tissue and function, whatever. It's all about alignment and things. So they became the kind of the crackers. And they were famous for manipulating you at different levels, which I have issues with. I manipulate people, I really admit, but it's to achieve one specific thing. I think some of their techniques are a bit aggressive and it kind of to be there are ones horse show, whatever, pony, whatever it is, pony and trap. But they've morphed too. They used to be just spines. My argument with them was, I had a four-year medical training before I started, and that was very helpful. But I said to him, look, so you keep taking these x-rays and talking about little tiny, you know, millimeters off. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a symmetrical body. Secondly, yeah. it's a frozen moment in time, so it could just be it's volume or whatever. But more importantly, can you honestly tell me that if I take an x-ray after your treatment, it'll be any different? And that's where they begin to wobble. And that bothered me. And I looked at and I've been to lectures with them. And I think some of their techniques are brilliant and useful. And I use them myself. I've learned to use them. So I think multiple trainings is the way forward anyway. So then mm-hmm. in kind of a late goal, probably 50s or 60s, physio came in, really. I mean, there were people, you know, who called themselves physio. But 
And it started at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. And there was a wonderful man called Syriax. He looked like Alfred Hitchcock. I, in fact, in the very early years, managed to get one of his last lectures. And he was an incredible guy. But he said, look, we don't need to be in spinal surgery. We need to be manipulating, mobilizing, whatever. So he invented all these brilliant techniques. And we still look at his textbook. But he said exercise. So physio kind of morphed more into exercise therapy there's a lot of electronics so faradayism zapping whapping you know ultrasound i didn't mm-hmm. find it very useful personally but you know some patients like the placebo that it gives um <laughs> but let's not underestimate that you know i openly use placebo and some people say that's contentious but it's not it's just a belief mechanism so you know you set up an environment where people want to be healed and you've yeah. already they're giving themselves to you they're setting up the potential they're for opening what you're up doing, to for what you're yeah. peddling to be absolutely and i'm very open but you know in my clinic everything from the lift the smell is on my top floor the light that i chose my floor for unbelievable they, you literally seem to kind of go oh you know this I is feel nice. already. <laughs> and we're looking professional you know we all wear scrubs and we're all clean and covid and obviously but i mean before that everybody wore white coats and it was very mm-hmm. not clinical and, and imposing but also everyone was friendly and high and i'm really interested in you and you know, what you're scared, you're in pain. I get that. You know, I've had it, mm-hmm. by the way. You know, I get that. It's, it's a bitch. You know, let's sort yeah. it out for you and let's find the story behind what it is. And like, I hope that the moment they enter the building, I've probably got a 20% response in them. Seriously. I and mean, I'm that anal about mm-hmm. the pathway they go through. Mm-hmm. We look at the imaging and half the time we're actually saying that is irrelevant. You know, way mm-hmm. too much imaging done and everybody has bulging discs, you know, at a certain age. So don't mm-hmm. worry about that. Uh, don't have the fear of God put into you and rush into an operation. Mm-hmm. So for me, osteopathy was a mu- I loved using my hands mm-hmm. and I could feel a lot of things. You know, I've always been very manual. Fun enough, I come from a very sort of touchy-feely family, which, does, which helps. <laughs> not but very British of you. No, not very British. I know, I know. My mum's very kind of Italianate there. Lots of love and hugs. And yeah, lovely, great. Really. Perfect. <laughs> But also, and dad, actually, my father was is very like that too. So I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. I then went and did rehab medicine in Germany, which was much more kind of getting behind the more difficult stuff, a lot of neuro rehab. I was lucky enough to be involved in the Australian Olympics. And I've always had two sides to my life, which is performance medicine, which is kind of what I do mm-hmm. at the hedge fund now. But before that, it was Formula One and mm-hmm. elite athletes and looking at how we could take what we learned from them into what we can do now. And kind of that's now a bit de rigueur. You know, people are doing that. But in the late 90s, early to nobody was looking into athletes. No one mm-hmm. was tracking them, isolating them, increasing performance. And actually, more importantly, saying, why are they injuring? Not how do we make them faster? Women was a good example. We did a study into why were more women athletes, sprinters particularly, why were they injuring more, you know? And what I mean, was the answer? Out of well, the, flak, the flak we got for that was like, oh, you just want to see, you, know, you just want to show up why women are weaker. It's like, no, but they're not the same, are they? You know, in lots of ways, they're not the same. So we called it the similar but not the same study. And we discovered, oh. strangely enough, that when women ovulate, so when mm-hmm. they're not menstruate but ovulate, their mm-hmm. soft tissues soften. You've probably noticed that yourself. You would suddenly notice that you retain water at certain times of the month. And in yeah. fact, you feel your tissues feel boggier. They just feel uh-huh. more squeaky. Yeah. And what it does, it weakens ligaments. Okay. Soft tissues generally. So your collagen... And that's when the accidents are happening. And of course, mm-hmm. this, so what we did is we just tracked the menstrual cycles of the athletes. Yeah. And hey, presto, when they were going through days 11 to 12 to 15, what we uh-huh. literally did is we, the weights load particularly, we simply way offloaded it during that little period. Uh-huh. And we saw an exponential drop in injuries. Wow, incredible. But it's just understanding that women do different things to men, you know. Yeah. And yeah. our testosterone on trading floors makes us do unbelievably stupid things. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, you know, probably most women in the world have experienced. 
But I think, it, you know, it makes us take more and more risk. Then we crash and then the cortisone kicks in. And a lot of wives out there will know their husbands and partners that when they, for example, when they're stressed, their libido drops. Well, mm-hmm. that's because it suppresses testosterone. Mm-hmm. It helps to understand that. You know, yeah. it, I'm not, I haven't got a problem. I just, I need to get through this phase. You know? Yeah. So how to counterbalance that as well for a healthier, more balanced lifestyle. Yeah. But I think what osteopathic medicine did for me was it certainly taught me functional anatomy. I mean, doctors mm-hmm. still are taught where things are, but not what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's a big mm-hmm. problem. And the interconnectedness, and, right? Yeah. And the system. So it was a systems approach, yeah. not a regional anatomy approach. Yeah. It was always integrative, which I found incredibly exciting. And my worry is in some of the schools now that we've tried to, in order to be sort of accepted by the medical profession, we've kind of moved more towards a more traditional approach to teaching it. But I think what I got at med school compared to what I got there, um, chalk and cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, in America, DO, Doctor of Osteopathy, is in fact a well-respected further qualification, which a lot mm-hmm. of provincial doctors do because it helps them win provincial practices dealing with orthopedics and sports injuries, etc. But bottom line, it's function. How do I change this person's function mm-hmm. such that their body can better able, regain control and heal itself? You mm-hmm. know, we have everything in us that we need. Yeah, and supporting that as well, which is completely my philosophy, which I really love as well, and part of the longevity and lifestyle one as well. My understanding in the US is actually to become an osteopath, you need a full medical training. So they're very hands-off, actually. Yeah, that's the problem. And sadly, I just found out that, because I have some amazing physio colleagues and I have some amazing chiropractic colleagues. I'm dissing, if you like, as they say, certain elements of their training. The tragedy I've just found out is that the physio training here now, as far as I'm told, doesn't have any manual therapy in it at all. So they don't touch their mm-hmm. patients effectively, which I think is, and they're doing their students a serious damage. So I think if they want to do it, it may be financial, but I know that if they want to do it, mm-hmm. they have to pay for it as an extra module, which is a disgrace in my mm-hmm. view. They're selling their students short in a big way. Mm-hmm. I tell you where it comes from. It comes from NICE, you know, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, because what they do at NICE, and I get the reason they need to be there, they need to look at, whether things are viable and expensive and can we afford them and are they effective? The problem with, and I think this is an important point, is that if you look at randomized controlled studies or blinded controlled studies, which Mm -hmm. are seen as the gold standard of empirical science, Mm -hmm. I totally agree, they are. The problem is they don't lend themselves to humans. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to, they did a famous study where they said, does cracking a back, does manipulation heal a disc problem? Well, mm-hmm. I can tell you now, no, because mm-hmm. we wouldn't use it for a disc problem. It's like saying, would anti-inflammatories help dementia? No. Well, fun enough if they do, actually, because it's a bad analogy. But, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not comparing like with like. And also yeah. the multidimensional thing. And so we do that. We do that manipulation. But then we look at the mobilization. None of that can be studied as an independent variable. That's the mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. So we whittle it down to one parameter that says, well, no, this doesn't actually work. It's like spinal injections. I get colleagues to use them all the time. If a patient is incredibly flared up and you can't touch them, then they have a little bit of steroid injection. It can have an incredible effect. But you would never do it without then all the physical therapy. Mm-hmm. But if you look at spinal injections, only they're only about 40% successful. So they say, oh, well, those don't work. Well, no, no, they are a vector to allowing me to do this. Yeah. But if you independently study them, so the first mm-hmm. thing they said is, oh, great, we don't have to pay for those. We're not doing it. So insurance companies, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I think that there's a lovely thing by Jung, which I like, and I try and explain to students, which is that he said, if you go to a pebble beach mm-hmm. and you square off, let's say, 10 feet of pebbles, and you took every one of those pebbles and you studied each, the dimensions of each pebble, mm-hmm. and you divided it by the number of pebbles and found the average pebble, you'll mm-hmm. never find that pebble on the beach. Because mm-hmm. there's no such thing as an average pebble. And that's exactly what humans are like. So we take this very kind of, you know, gunshot approach 
the slingshot approach at treating everybody, mm-hmm. many of them will settle out of that and won't be helped. Mm-hmm. And we've got two reductionist about how we approach it. And that is, I do put a lot of the blame for that at governing bodies and etc. but also drug companies. You know, I've invented a breathing monitor recently. I'm fascinated by breathing, spent 20 years studying it. But if I say to the world, asthma is not a disease, it's a breathing pattern disorder in stressed kids, okay, Mm -hmm. they literally won't have me speak at any of the conferences because Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is don't give them hormones. You don't give them puffers. So, and that's real. I mean, I've really experienced that and that's Mm -hmm. scary. So Mm -hmm. anybody really with new creative ideas that doesn't directly lead to a financially beneficial drug doesn't get a look in. In fact, positively gets suppressed. Yeah. And that's a worry because, I mean, like you say to these physicians, so can they tell me why do you give a child with a breathing pattern disorder a stress hormone to treat mm-hmm. it, right? Subutamol is cortisol. For life as well, by the For way. For life. And of course, just, well, because they've become inured to their own cortisol, that's why. And of course, they become more inured to it. So what happens is we need to give them more and more. Oh, and the other one, Ventolin, is mm-hmm. an adrenaline agonist. Mm-hmm. You know, it opens up your airways. Okay, yeah, I get that's necessary. But why are they opening up their areas in the first place? And it's nothing to do with allergy. Allergy comes second, mm-hmm. right? If you breathe badly, you get increased mast cells in your airway. Mm-hmm. That's where the allergy comes from. Because mm-hmm. there are plenty of kids in India who breathe pea soup for a living mm-hmm. who aren't asthmatic. So don't tell me it's mm-hmm. all allergy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you ask any of the respiratory nurses I know running up in the north where they see some really deprived areas, etc., where kids are in constant menace in their households from you know, mm-hmm. domestic violence, they will tell you all of those kids have worse asthma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's the correlation there, which is very sad. Yeah. I'd love to talk about pain. You're quite the expert in pain and relieving pain. How would you define pain? And we have an interesting analogy we spoke about when we first met on why we feel pain and what are the typical types as well and some of the myths and misconceptions. Can you walk a bit through that? Wow. Yeah. Obviously, I did a book two years ago, and the idea was to say there are not It's been very poorly explained to people what pain is, why we hurt. And partly because we didn't know, partly because, again, drug companies want to go down the route of like, you know, you have these pain pathways and we block them with drugs and they're clever and they're whatever, which actually is just a complete lie. Right. Mm -hmm. There are no pain centers. There are no pain fibers or Mm -hmm. pathways that transmit pain anywhere in the body. Right. That's true. Even doctors aren't taught that, okay? There are two types of pain. Mm -hmm. You've got what we call nociception, tried to explain very simply, is any stimulus to the body. So if I take a pen with a sharp Mm -hmm. end and I put it into my finger, okay, to a Mm -hmm. certain point, my brain is suddenly going, oh, hello, you know, something's touching my finger. It's no threat to me. It's okay. But if Mm -hmm. I keep pressing, Mm -hmm. my body has learned over a number of years through my nervous system of examining these that past a certain point pressure, Mm-hmm. But that will penetrate my tissues. That's mm-hmm. a danger to me. I'm going to get an infection. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bleed. Okay. So what do I do? I respond by retracting. That's it. Mm-hmm. Sensory mm-hmm. input, motor output. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I perception in, retract. That's all it is. It's that, that's the yep. simple. That tends to happen at the level of the spinal cord. So it's burn my finger, feel something I don't like. Oh, squidgy, yuck. You know, all those sorts of things. Move it away. Mm-hmm. That's just save yourself from being eaten penetrated, infected, etc. Mm-hmm. So we learn to do that, but it's all about thresholds. So even when I feel pain from the tip of my finger from this thing being very sharp, okay, mm-hmm. there's no pain message. It's just a threshold of input. It's saying that there's now so much pressure to this small area of skin 
that I know from my experience mm-hmm. that that's going to cause me harm. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And that's just a number of things. And that's it. So that, that's like, holy shit, take it away. Okay. <laughs> what about the heat or something like that? Is that a that's different We have temperature receptors in our skin. And you know when you're running your bath and you're feeling the water, and you're all lovely and warm, and then it'll have it a bit warmer, and suddenly like, oh, ah, put it under the tap. You know, it's just so what is it? Sensory mm-hmm. input. We know our brains know that if you go roughly over about forty degrees, you know you're going to retract your hand because why? Because proteins denature at forty degrees. Mm-hmm. Amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. And but the brain knows that mm-hmm. partly through experience mm-hmm. and partly through engramming that's been put mm-hmm. into you. Things you just know that certain inputs are going to be a danger mm-hmm. to you. Because even babies, obviously, will retract if they feel heat. So we mm-hmm. know that that can't be learned. That must be mm-hmm. in there as an anger, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. So then we've got the second type of pain, which is the really mm-hmm. interesting one that I spend most of my time treating, which is chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Chronic is literally a name. It's a name given by medics because they had to give it a label. And mm-hmm. they set it at three months as an arbitrary mm-hmm. figure. Why? Because in general terms, most injuries and things that happen to us will heal within, let's say, a broken bone. It will heal in six weeks. Mm-hmm. So we allow it a full three months for complications, etc. But in general terms, most things will be healed within three mm-hmm. months. Okay, so if it's healed, why are they still getting pain? Mm-hmm. That's the big question. And those are the people that we look at and so interested. So what we've learned is that over time, pain can become a habit that the brain gets into. Mm-hmm. Okay? So going back to quickly the pricky finger thing, Mm-hmm. The retraction is things, but it's also designed to give you an unpleasant sensation so you don't do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, otherwise, you just wouldn't really retract. It's the combination of an experience with just a motor response. Mm-hmm. So that is now log that that pressure equals that unpleasant experience. Not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. But what that means is I go into an avoidance strategy. I go into sort of, oh, I don't really fancy doing that again. So mm-hmm. in a bigger case, I've broken my arm, mm-hmm. but actually it's healed. But it could take something like I had with a young Russian lady yesterday where she'd been told that she was at risk of fracturing because some cancer therapy she's on. And I said, look, the doctor's not wrong. But if that was the case, you'd be walking along the road fracturing bones because okay? mm-hmm. she's literally moving herself like this. Just relax <laughs> yourself. You know, she couldn't be rubbed because she thought her ribs would break. You know, mm-hmm. so she'd got this massively heightened fit. And in less than 10 minutes, her pain had gone mm-hmm. just by telling her that. Relax breathe by the way of course you can do that. you know this is the level do you want to go around humping pianos no can your sister give you a hug of course you're you and she's quite a big lady and i said look if you take your body mass and you turn yourself in bed you're putting more pressure with your muscles on those bones than anything i'm going to do to you mm-hmm. yet they haven't broken yet so the evidence would suggest she's not right so she's right in one sense but she hasn't given you a level at which to worry so she was walking around like a china cup muscles ache and causing issues holding yeah. her breath, dizzy spells. So suddenly she thinks she's sick in a whole new way. Teach mm-hmm. her to rebreathe, relax. I mean, literally that's all we did with her and she's a new person, you know. Incredible. But it's accepting that first. So the trouble with pain experiences is that they're actually felt with a whole network mm-hmm. of elements. I'll give you another analogy. You're walking down the street and it's an autumn day. You can smell burning leaves in the background. It's wet street. You can hear street noise, you know, certainly. And you're taking in all sorts of sensory information which you're mapping. And then suddenly a mugger comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. smacks you over the arm, breaks your wrist as you fall down, takes your wallet. Luckily, no more than that disappears. Mm-hmm. Now, that whole experience, mm-hmm. the actual injury you've had, is a broken wrist. Mm-hmm. Your brain's quite quickly made the not unreasonable association, which is muggers cause broken wrists. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
mugging is unpleasant. He could have done something much worse to me, etc. But you've set that injury into your brain, mm-hmm. you're gathering information about it. You're sending healing molecules. But the funny thing is they come in and say, I'm still getting pain from my wrist six months later. Mm-hmm. Okay. And weirdly, when it's damp, it seems to be worse. Well, that happens for two reasons. One is your mood always decreases. When you look out the window, you know, you see the rain outside. You immediately, internally, yeah? yeah. <laughs> that opens up the opportunity for pain. Yeah. But also, it could be you smell on a train the aftershave of a guy who happened to be the same aftershave wearing that the mugger was wearing. And literally, bim, 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 pain will come on. Why? Because the fear response. It says, this will harm me, uh-huh. or this involves in any part of the experience. It could be the smell of the leaves. Mm-hmm. It could be a wet surface of a thing. It could be walking down that street again. And so that's like at the heart of PTSD to a certain extent. You know, it's with much bigger traumas, is it? Rather than just being able to say, oh, yeah, but, you know, I was unlucky. and whatever. It's kind of like, oh, my God, all streets, basically, that are wet, dank, smell like this. And every time I smell that aftershave, I'm going to break my wrist. That's the association the brain's made. Uh-huh. So it's quite interesting. But so a lot of it is psychology. It's kind of yeah. neuroscience. It's explaining that to patients, why they don't have to be fearful. But the real definition of pain is that it is when your subconscious brain needs to let your conscious brain know mm-hmm. that there is something to be feared or that something is causing harm. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all the message is. Mm-hmm. And that opens up a huge thing. But what I find fascinating is that we all feel pain. Mm-hmm. men women cross-culturally everybody because it's actually a language mm-hmm. it's a process if you like it's a purely subjective experience because it comes yeah. in lots of ways and forms and you will experience less or more than i do and our thresholds will be different but the way that we express it mm-hmm. is that there is it's a way of us expressing rather there is a dissonance if you like mm-hmm. okay? there's a misrepresentation between what you perceive to be the case mm-hmm. and what is actually the case uh-huh. And that's when you get the chronicness. That's when you get this pain that just won't go away. Mm-hmm. So how do you, you were saying with the breathing, yeah. a patient comes to you saying, you know, my hips are hurting me every time I walk or my knee. Where do you draw the line between it's, you know, they're not breathing correctly. They have some psychological trauma, perhaps around an injury or something that happened and then actual physical misalignment that needs to be corrected how would a typical session let's say with somebody who would consider themselves suffering chronic pain hip ankle whatever the case may be how would you solve that a really really good case history so the story right and i take them way back when you know why is this person particular and you can make a number of subjective decisions about people that come in that aren't judgmental but you know the average person who's type a worrying anxious they're going to wear immaculate makeup or they're going to wear the perfect suit and their hair is well kept and their facial hair you know there are just lots of everything manicure they're neat tidy people and they sit in neat night tidy ways those are people who don't really ever come outside a box and when they're forced to it's really 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 scary and they haven't got control over it so what do they do they get stressed so those people and increasingly in society we're seeing more and more of those Good example. I had a patient who had a big breathing pattern disorder, and interestingly, it got much worse at certain times of the day on a Thursday. And we thought this is very weird. And she was wearing a breathing monitor. I said, "Blimey, you know what happens at three o'clock? Because you are panting, baby. You know what's going on?" And she said, "That's really weird. That's my catch-up meeting with my boss." And I said, "Oh dear, is he a real nightmare?" She said, "Well, not really. I just don't really like him. I just don't get on with him." And going back in the history, she had an alcoholic father. And her mum was timid and tended to make the kids dance around dad's temper. So she'd always grown up with a fear of confrontation. Mm-hmm. 
So she said, yeah, I do feel confrontational with this guy. I said, but you, so you don't talk about the awkward things with him? Well, no, because I think he's got a temper. Said, Does he remind you of your dad? And she went, yeah, I suppose elements. Yeah, he had a temper too. And I go, okay, but that's it. So your primary response was to go around it. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, so I said, you're going to have a beer. You're going to take the initiative and you're going to take him out and say, look, I feel we don't get on great. And I think the company's noticing it and you know we're not moving forwards. And mm-hmm. He burst into tears. Apparently he was threatened by her. He thought she was really able and charismatic and was after her job. They both <laughs> ended up drinking too much, hugged, and so did it. And literally overnight, the whole company noticed. And ever since, the breathing rate back to normal. Unbelievable. So the strategy yeah. is Nick you, the matchmaker. Well, no, you know, you fear. Yeah, it wasn't the hug. wasn't that wasn't that loving. <laughs> but I think the point was that you know they're at loggerheads to each other for two perceived ideas from childhood beliefs, right? From yeah. Childhood beliefs. Yeah, and he had a thing. He probably a thing called um, what do they call it uh, imposter syndrome. Imposter And he'd come up through the ranks. He hadn't got the degree that everybody else had got. Mm-hmm. You know, his perception was he was going to be found out, and so they so what they do is so they, they overmanage and they underdelegate, and then they take on mm-hmm. too much and feel threatened yeah. by people. So that's just one example. But that was what was causing her stress. Mm-hmm. So you could have coached her in lots of other ways and missed it. Yeah. But her breathing was mm-hmm. a direct. Indicator. Indicator mm-hmm. of when she was becoming stressed by something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you know so what stresses her. You yeah, know. I'd love to dive into that shortly as well. But before we do, we'd love to talk about hypermobility and then move on to long COVID. So with the hypermobility, it's something that mm-hmm. you and I share. Yeah. And I understand it's a massive interest area of yours. Can you talk a bit about how it affects the rest of our body and why is hypermobility such a thing to be wary of and control, I guess? Yeah. I like that we share that sort of thing. I think that it's an amazing phenomenon that I think just never gets enough attention. God, way back in primary care, when I used to work in Fulham in London, mums and babies and whatever, you know, we were starting to see this. And we were noticing, for example, that actually a lot of the hypermobile women were, particularly women, sorry, it's primary in women and mm-hmm. by four to one. But what we noticed, for example, was that lots of them went on to have thyroid problems in mm-hmm. middle age. And so I said this to the GPs, have you ever noticed that? You know, they went, no, I haven't. But then they started to notice and I went, oh, okay. So actually... If you've got a hypermobile lady sitting in front of you and she's 45 saying, I'm getting overweight and my mood's bad and I'm shouting at the kids, you know, then just check her thyroid, you know, because the indicators are there, the, the associations are there. And I think now with the hypermobility.org who we have, who are brilliant, they're a bunch of rheumatologists, you know, they're gathering this stuff. And we all know it in clinic. It's just the randomized studies haven't been done yet. But we know that in two years time, we'll hear that there are more clotopathies, as I call them. They have tend to have more bleeding disorders. But why I'm so interested is that when I do, my, I do a lot on the BBC and we do the surgery and it's extraordinary the response we get, you know, because we know there's 28 million people out there suffering with chronic pain. But what is extraordinary is how many people their chronic pain is underpinned by their hypermobility. Wow. And it's really quite obvious. Mm-hmm. So going back to hypermobility, it's a collagen disorder. It's very simple. So it's flexi people, hypermobile people are, you know, double jointed is the other word. You know, first thing in the morning, they can usually touch their hands pretty much flat on the floor. There is a test called Baton score, which is extending your finger to 90 degrees on both sides, elbows, <laughs> knees that go back and touching your hands, yeah. whatever. Also, stretchy skin. It comes in a number of guises. Okay, uh-huh. so it can be, you can have stretchy joints and ligaments. Mm-hmm. You can have stretchy mm-hmm. skin without the others. You can have some joints that aren't, but mm-hmm. whatever. It's a spectrum disorder, so a bit like autism, you can be sort of very autistic or you can be, you know, mild. But also the bad end of it, there are some disorders, Marfan syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS as it's called, which I think mm-hmm. is also actually overdiagnosed. But anyway, 
which are the poor people who are kind of, they're very blobby. They have no tone in their muscles. They mm-hmm. tend to put on weight very easily. And they have real problems, actually, and it's really sad. And they're not very sporty, so they don't join the social group. You know, But again, if we could find them as kids, in my way, I would have all children assessed musculoskeletal from an early age to pick up scoliosis, to pick up, you know, joint problems, foot problems, etc. Most importantly, if they're hypermobile, it's much more commonly associated with ADD, attention deficit disorder. So mm-hmm. they're kind of hypervigilant all the time and also anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if you know that, mm-hmm. then you've got a child who won't sit still. Mm-hmm. You know, don't give him a hard time. Put him at the back of the class, but not because he's being disgraced. Say, because if you need to, you can get up and move. Hypermobile yeah. people like us need to move to think. Uh-huh. It's really yeah. important, okay? Yeah. Because they're uncomfortable in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And the main reason for that, it took me ages to work it out, but with a psychiatrist and a neurologist, we sat down and mm-hmm. realized actually that something somebody said on a, on a podcast like this, that I thought, oh my God, that's why this happens. Is if you've got squidgy soft tissues, okay, mm-hmm. that are more like marshmallow than they are mm-hmm. like cold chewing gum. That's what cold chewing gum is normal, okay? Mm-hmm. And you bury in that chewing gum mechanoreceptors, which are receptors that pick up movement, deflections of movement. That's how we balance, okay? Mm-hmm. So your joints are moving. As my finger joint's going up and down, it's sending mm-hmm. information to my brain that it's up, down, around. It knows where it is all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If those receptors are buried in marshmallow, Mm-hmm. then you have to have a much bigger deflection of movement mm-hmm. to register a ping. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, mm-hmm. ping, ping, but then this one, it's ping, 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 much smaller movements. Mm-hmm. So you have a much finer tuned system than if you have the marshmallow. Why is that important? Because going back to what I said, we are mapping the world visually. So we yeah. see the world the way we think it is. We relate it to how we map it physically. So is it over there? Yes, that correlates there. The mm-hmm. problem is that's great if you're actually looking at something. But most of us use our peripheral vision so sport, for example, we're looking at the guy who's going to tackle us and we're relying on knowing where they are pretty reliably to put our hand mm-hmm. or foot in a place that's not going to be. The problem for us hypermobiles is we're clumsy. You may have noticed that yourself. It's not gross, but you that's tend to knock over glasses of water. You tend to sort of just, you know, trip your foot up. And no matter how many times you know the coffee table's there, you still knock your shin on it, that sort of thing. And it's just a mismapping, but it means there is a disjunct between your eyes are telling you Mm-hmm. And what your body position is telling you, system is mm-hmm. telling you. And let's mm-hmm. say it's just off by half an inch, but that's quite significant because it means yeah. that if your toe isn't coming over something pointy, mm-hmm. it's going to hit it and you're going to trip. Now, go back to the saber-toothed tiger world, which is we're still primed to do. Yeah. And you couldn't trust your body to take you away from that source of threat mm-hmm. without tripping over the tree stump that's in front of you. The world's a dangerous place to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're hypervigilant, because you're always looking for what's new, because you might have to, because you have to be that much more careful than everybody else. Yeah. That's where the ADD comes from and the anxiety. Yeah. Because if you're constantly looking for novelty, which is the only thing that can ever do us any harm, and by the way, that sits in your peripheral vision, our peripheral vision picks up novelty, because that's what's new. So you map the world, you feel comfortable about a room because you know it, you've mapped it, and there are no areas of danger. Mm-hmm. But what you are looking for, your peripheral vision is looking for all the time that you just don't know it. Is something that's changing in the room, and that's usually movement. Yeah. So if you're constantly looking for movement, hey, presto, you're not finding it very easy to focus, and that's what happens in the classroom. Their mm-hmm. nervous system's constantly looking, and also twitching, moving. You know, yeah. Where am I? Where am I in space? Because my receptors are moving out. It's like having a constantly shifting system. Mm-hmm. That's why they love dance. It's why yeah. most contemporary dancers are hypermobile. It's why a lot of ballerinas mm-hmm. are hypermobile, and so they find movement because it also gives them the tone that they naturally lack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And would the tone and the muscle strength counterbalance that or support that, let's say? Your friend in hypermobility is fascia. 
which is the mm. deep membranes inside your body that pass through and permeate all of your body and hold you together like a kind of system. We call it tensegrity in osteopathy. It's the things yeah. that hold you together. Mm. And if you don't establish, your body develops or reinforces itself. So, mm. you know, if you're a terribly sporty person, your bones thicken. They have to, mm. to give you more mm. support. Your muscles thicken, your ligaments thicken because of mm. load, current load. Your body develops thicker joints. Mm. If you get those in early, so that's why I would have all kids who are hypermobile playing sport and doing multiple exercise all the time. Mm-hmm. Then you develop that thick fascia and that helps you in adulthood because when you then go to desk work, et cetera, et cetera, and you do naturally lose the tone that you had, you're mm-hmm. not going to have, and that's what I was lucky enough to do playing rugby, et cetera. I always had that internal fascial system. Yeah. But my resting tone, I'm always envious of the guys in the gym who are ripped because I know I'm never going to have it. You know, you look at lovely guys with black, black guys with those amazing, but their resting tone is incredibly high. That is genetic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's what produces the ripness. And, of course, my lovely ladies who come in and say, oh, my God, you know, I'm doing all this working out and I'm still not going to. It's like, well, you're never going to get it because your resting tone is naturally low. And what they tend to find is they feel really toned for two days because they've got a mm-hmm. heightened tone. In them. And of course, that wallows away. That's why they mm-hmm. go straight back in the gym thinking they're going to get it more. They'll get nice, defined mm-hmm. muscles, but they'll mm-hmm. never have that ripped, shredded look, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But it's just, you have to accept that. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about long COVID coming out of, hopefully, the pandemic. I'm optimistic at the moment. But how? what's the best way to treat it in your view? You've seen a lot of patients also with this, right? Yeah, well, again, partly through this research I was doing with the breathing mark and working with two amazing guys from Imperial who have brains the size of planets. And what we kind of realized was that this long COVID that we were seeing, and you have to be careful here because it sounds like you're kind of dissing it as a concept. It's nothing to do with the virus, okay, in real terms. So if you've got longer, you have not got a nasty little weevil running around your system, okay? So that's a lot of it. But it's a fear thing. Like, have I still got it? Am I ever going to get rid of this disease? You know, it's an anxiety-based response. There is definitely a profile of patient. Mm-hmm. Many more female, I'm afraid. We have to just mm-hmm. accept that. On these things, you have to be careful. But there's reasons for that. Mm-hmm. And then also, they tend to be quite type A characters in the first place. So again, they were kind of pre-warriors. Mm-hmm. The reason that's important, and without getting into too much science, there is a fundamental relationship in the human body mm-hmm. called very long-term work called RSA, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Now, that is the gentle, coherent relationship between your pulse rate Mm-hmm. your breathing rate, mm-hmm. and your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of understood relationship that the brain has and the heart has, because they talk to each other in real mm-hmm. terms, but through nerves, mm-hmm. that when you are breathing, mm-hmm. you have to adjust for the drop in pressure in your chest. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you'd faint. Yeah. So what that should happen is when you breathe in, your pulse rate should go up. Mm-hmm. Okay. When mm-hmm. you breathe out, your pulse rate should go down. And we should listen for that. Most doctors don't know why they listen for it. Okay. What you're listening for is to hear the coherence and the bonding of those three things. Mm-hmm. What we've discovered is stressed patients, and this is really key. In fact, I shouldn't be telling you this because it's a huge secret of my business. But anyway, stressed <laughs> patients lose that coherence. And we think it can be as early as 10 years old. Okay, wow. So it shows that it's a kind of sociocultural effect. It's not just, you know, later on. Mm-hmm. And if you lose that coherence, mm-hmm. you lose the body's ability to maximize and optimize circulation of oxygen around the body for Mm -hmm. the fewest numbers of pulse rate beats. Does that make sense? Because the body's always looking for efficiency. It's an incredible thing. It doesn't want to be stressed. It wants to return to a lower energetic state. Mm -hmm. So it gets stuck in this cycle. And if you look at a lot of people who are quite stressed, they often hold their breath. You're doing it now, okay? You're holding your breath. I've been practicing trying to breathe. There you go. 
but it's often when they're intense so when new things things they need to concentrate on okay so it's like bambi in the woods yeah, no, but okay. I do. I hold my breath. Yeah, as you know. Yeah. So the problem is that you'll notice, and people can do it out there listening, is is if they, when they hold the breath, they hold it in. They never hold it out. Right? They don't go, they go. Why is yeah, that? They hold it there. Because, good question. We think we've got the answer. But bottom line is because you're used to holding an inspiratory tendency. So hyperventilators, warriors, tend to breathe too quickly and too shallowly. Mm-hmm. They also tend to do it all up in their neck and chest. So not only are they wasting energy, because instead of just using their diaphragm, okay, they're mm-hmm. having to jack up against gravity. So I call them sort of Robocop. They walk around like this. So you see, they kind of just don't move their shoulders. And, you can and see I'm going to push my shoulders muscles. down as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, actually, when you first, if you say drop your shoulders, they go, you know, they can't because they don't know that they've got to breathe out first. Yeah. The other sinister thing that it does, which is weird, is it actually fires all of the small motor end units. Now, those are the little tiny nerves that come into your muscles and tell them when to fire. And what we found is that in special deep ones, it turns all of their tension up. So when people feel tense, they are. It's because they're mm-hmm. priming to run, effectively. Mm-hmm. And those are the patients who say, come on, relax, let go. You know, I, can't, I am. No, no, you're, no, you're not. You know. So then you get them to do the breathing and the muscles just go boom. And what happens is, so breathing is the only thing that we have mm-hmm. that we can monitor easily. Mm-hmm. That gives us access to what our subconscious brain is doing, so mm-hmm. all the control mechanisms, etc. Because you have no idea what you're consciously doing. But what it does, and then it teaches the brain to calm, to return to that coherence. But more importantly, for the forebrain, your thinking brain switches back on. Mm-hmm. You can think more rationally, so you can think yourself out of stress. Mm-hmm. But most important, your vagus nerve, which is the nerve that teaches you to relax and digest. I mean, that IBS, you know, it's just stress people's bowels, right? It's, I'm sorry, it's not biome. It's rubbish, right? Mm-hmm. It's the nervous system shutting down your bowel because when you're going to flee from the same tooth tiger, you don't need to be digesting. Yeah. Okay. In mm-hmm. fact, unpleasant though it is, a lot of humans and also animals actually mm-hmm. defecate. They actually evacuate their bowel when they're acutely stressed. It's a well-known mm-hmm. phenomenon. We think it's probably just to offload weight. Mm-hmm. To be able burglars, to run. for example, you ask policemen, they'll tell you that first-time burglars are so nervous they very often poo themselves. <laughs> and they smear it on the wall as a protest. But we know that animals do it, etc. So, you know, I'm coin a phrase, he shat himself. Literally, it's a primitive response. So yeah. the reason that we think that you particularly see a profile of patient is because these guys were already preset to have mm-hmm. the lack of coherence. So mm-hmm. they tended to be hyperventilators, warriors, poor sleepers, etc. And what we discovered was that COVID Mm-hmm. causes this cytokine shower, as we all know, mm-hmm. right, which is a huge shower of inflammatory molecules. And they're the ones, mm-hmm. that, what they particularly affect is blood vessels. They cause inflammation. It's a vasculitis. They cause an inflammation in blood vessels. And that's mm-hmm. everywhere. That's mm-hmm. why I'm afraid very large people particularly mm-hmm. suffered because they have more blood vessels, more blood, and they have yeah. a much bigger allergenic. It's actually an allergenic response. It's not really the pneumonia that kills you. It's mm-hmm. this huge allergy response that you get. Mm-hmm. In conjunction, and your system before your system can fight the bug, the allergy system has already done for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why being big was dangerous for people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, going back to long COVID, what we think happens is that the cytokines change mm-hmm. the permeability, okay, mm-hmm. the leakiness of blood vessels, mm-hmm. and they can leave them not permanently, but for an extended period, they can leave them leaky. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens is that relates to the blood pressure. So, they lost them, did get pooling. Of blood into the legs and the venous system. Okay, so, so then people should... were getting dizzy and things like that. Exactly, then as well. but of course that they also got palpitations and because their 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 heart was constantly adjusting to try and cater for this. So then they got dizzy and whatever. But interestingly, mm-hmm. most of the ones I've seen were also hypermobile. 
don't forget your blood vessels are slacker if you're hypermobile. That's why you get more, unfortunately, venous changes in your legs. You get you know, bigger legs and whatever, and you get retention of fluid because you dump your fluid in your legs. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons we give them compression types to wear as anti-COVID, because what happens is it means they don't get the dumping of pressure. They can readjust their central mm-hmm. system. They mm-hmm. don't get the dizziness. The breathing re-teaches them coherence. Mm-hmm. And then they can take exercise and they can move because a lot of them are like bedridden. Mm. And then fear was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm permanently like this for the rest of my life. It's all this, you know, catastrophization was feeding into it. But yeah. touch wood, I've had phenomenal success with it. And I work with this wonderful guy called Dr. Boone Lim at Imperial. And he is a cardiologist who specializes in tilt testing and doing things around blood pressure. Uh-huh. And he's been gobsmacked how we can. Uh, we also tend to give them sometimes some antihistamines for a short while because that inhibits the effect that cytokines have and mast cells have on leakiness of blood vessels don't panic yeah okay not the rest of your life if you're hypermobile that's what's not helping and understand mm-hmm. it better and hopefully we've helped here today mm-hmm. but most importantly get to somebody who has a long covid profile protocol because uh, it works excellent talking about obesity you mentioned before as well obviously a lot of difficulties i think the american has a statistic that now over 73 percent of u.s adults are overweight of which 42 percent of american adults are obese and i think in the uk the figure is around 28 percent yeah why in your view is obesity so terrible for our health and how can people overcome the epidemic of obesity uh, where do I start? And of course, I'll be accused of, you know, fat shaming and all sorts of things. I think what we've got to. OK, I'm going to tell you a little story. So I was out walking during COVID with my daughter, with two other, you know, we were abiding by all the rules and having a fresh air walk. And she's got a very, very nice friend who mm-hmm. we'll call Emily. And she is probably two or three stone overweight. People who don't know what a stone is, it's 14 pounds and then divide by 2.2 to get to the kilos. So, yeah, just so stones. <laughs> Not no, everybody it's, knows it's significant. It a lot of it's around her thighs and her tummy and all of yeah. Anyway, and we're walking on the road and she likes a good debate. She knows I'm a strident and opinionated individual. And she <laughs> said to me, so they were talking about rights and this thing. And she said, well, you know, it's like this COVID fat thing. And, you know, I have a right to be fat. And then, of course, she said to me, you know, don't I, Mr. P? And I went, do you really want the answer to that question? And she said, and of course I saw my wife go, you know, back up, back away from the hole, back away from the hole. (laughs) Because yeah, in absolute terms, you have the right to be as heavy as you want to be. And I'm not going to judge you for it. It's your choice. But can I give you the other side of the story? And she said, yes. I said, look, for every, I think it's about two pounds of extra fat that you carry, your heart has to pump the blood around your body an extra seven miles, mm-hmm. right? Because in lifetime in, or seven miles where? No, 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 no. Per, per, per pump in real per term. Pump. That's wow. Because inside fat are tiny capillaries, blood cells, mm-hmm. right? Thin as my hair. Mm-hmm. Millions and millions and millions of them. Because mm-hmm. it's a, fat is the way that when we are under stress, we can quickly mobilize energy. So we have to have the motorway system to go and pick up that fat and get it to us quickly. So it's full mm-hmm. of blood and it has to be sustained and supplied with oxygen. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it has to be supplied with oxygen. So inside those blood vessels are also many, many more millions blood cells. Mm-hmm. So you're carrying not just weight, but a whole lot more blood. Mm-hmm. The blood has to be moved. And the mm-hmm. thing that moves that is your heart. Mm-hmm. So to increase the movement of blood around your body, you have to put mm-hmm. your pulse rate up. Well, mm-hmm. let's say 10, 15%. That's great. But if you're doing millions and millions and millions of beats a year mm-hmm. and you're having to put that up by 20 percent, that's many, many millions of beats. That's a strain to your heart. So what does your heart do? It's like any muscle. Mm-hmm. It thickens. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And there's a fundamental ratio between the inside, the size of the heart chamber and the size of the heart wall. And once that ratio is lost, it's really serious. Okay. So then what happens is your pulse rate goes up, then your breathing rate has to go up because you've got to oxygenate that blood. You've got to get rid of the extra side effects of, of metabolism. Okay. So everything's got to just go up 20%. That's fine when you're 25. Okay. But then what's going to happen, particularly if you keep putting on weight, is you're going to become diabetic. Because mm-hmm. your poor old pancreas is desperately trying to convert all that fat to energy, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to start saying, hey, dude, I'm tired. I'm fatigued. This is really hard work. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you're going to become pre-diabetic. And mm-hmm. the only reason you'll know that is because you keep getting throat infections and you feel tired all the time. You go along to the doctor and she says, oh, yeah, your blood sugars are up. And hey, and what are they going to do? They're probably just going to give you stuff called metformin, right? Mm-hmm. Which just pushes the coping mechanism a little. It doesn't cure you. It just helps support your pancreas a bit. But it will drop off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And then you'll become diabetic, and then they'll put you onto lyroglutide injections and lots of other things because they, they don't really want to cure you. They want to keep you on the drugs. Okay. Mm-hmm. She rang me two days later, mm-hmm. and she said, "I've gone on a diet. I thought what you said to me had never been explained to me before." Mm-hmm. Oh, and by one thing I said to me is, "Treat your fat as a parasite mm-hmm. because it is attached to you and it mm-hmm. is sucking you of the very life force that you mm-hmm. need for the rest of your body, and it's called oxygen." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's that simple mm-hmm. and if you're happy with that no problem i will not judge you for it but don't let anybody tell you that they didn't tell you mm-hmm. and so go away with it and so i said you're fine at 25 but at 45 you'll be diabetic you'll mm-hmm. get inflammation in your joints you'll get inflammation mm-hmm. everywhere you'll get mm-hmm. horrible varicose veins in your legs mm-hmm. and you will feel horrible your personal hygiene may suffer but also just your personal worth and your physical identity. Anyway, I'm pleased to say she's lost two of those three stones. But it was brutal. It was brutal. It was a horrible thing to put. And I think my daughter nearly, nearly beat me over the head with a log, you know. <laughs> but I got the call. Maybe somebody else would have said, yeah, he's a Nazi. I'm never going to go and see him again. I hate him. He's made me feel horrible. I'm sorry, but don't ever say I didn't tell you the truth. But I think because you um, could explain it in the medical terms as well, yeah. that it just triggers a different sensitivity and point from it as well. I think the parasite thing's quite effective. Yeah, you, know, you don't like I think that's that something really... strapped to you, sucking you. Of the, you know, it's like Alien. You know, when the, that terrible moment in the film when this thing's inside of you, you realise <laughs> it's, it's been eating you alive. <laughs> and it's easy. I... Don't purge yourself. Don't go on these manic, baddy diets. We all know what we like that we shouldn't be eating. You know, whether it's the extra biscuit or the too many carbohydrates, etc. Just do adjust a couple of things in your life mm-hmm. that you permanently adjust and it will yeah. just drop off you. The 180 calories a day is, mm-hmm. I think, eight kilos a year in weight. Is that really mm-hmm. so difficult? That's a biscuit that you didn't have. Mm-hmm. And also a bit of exercise movement as well, right? The, the combination. Yeah. A couple of rapid fire questions, Nick. Okay. Do you have a particular morning routine to start your day as a success? Sleep. Mm-hmm. Actually, I work, unfortunately, very long hours. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely kind of ADD brain a bit, so I find mm-hmm. it difficult to go sleep. But I have actually worked enormously on, I'm using my breathing, actually. I really do attend, my wife and I do, and literally by eight, we're usually gone. No, sorry, by eight, as in eight breaths. Oh, I okay. I was like, I, you don't seem the type to go to bed at 8 p.m. <laughs> no, no. I, but, I, but equally, I'm not a kind of, I mean, I can't academically work, but I just know my brain is not firing properly after certainly kind of 11. I yeah. try now to be in bed by 10.30, which is a struggle, but it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm up at quite early. I commute, but actually I'm up at kind of 5.30. But I'm also lucky I get good sleep. So it's mm-hmm. not the length of time it's deep sleep but I definitely know and as a corollary of that I've definitely drunk less alcohol it just completely mm-hmm. started we reckon in athletes it'll 
ruin their performance by 20% for one beer. So that's big. So I think booze is a big thing we all need to realise about. And I think over COVID, there was a kind of everybody either kind of just drank themselves stupid or just kind of like, oh, I'm never drinking again. There was not much in between. I yeah. definitely went to drinking two glasses of wine at night more than I probably ever used to. So I've mm-hmm. done that on the head. I eat healthily. So I eat mm-hmm. a sort of Mediterranean diet. I tell you what I am convinced about, and this is the difference mm-hmm. between the Americans and us, which came over here. We actually did a study ages ago into rats where we fed them sugar. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get fat. And we showed them fat and they didn't get fat. Mm-hmm. When we fed them anything that was fried and sugary, so mm-hmm. donuts, very American diet, mm-hmm. oh my God, the results were horrendous. Hugely fat, lost all the way. Because their metabolism never gets used to processing one thing or the other. And I think, again, that's evolutionary. Because if you look at, let's suppose you took Africa, which is a nice contrast, you're dry on one side and tropical on the other. If you look at the distribution in body types across mm-hmm. that as well, West Africans tend to be kind of smaller, squatter, much stronger. Afro-Caribbeans are amazing at speed because they mostly came from West Africa. So they're very strong, fast twitch muscle fiber. And then you get the Ethiopians and the Kenyans who are longer mm-hmm. leaner. But that's also because they grew up evolutionarily in dry, arid lands. They literally had to travel further for their food. But also in dry, arid areas, you don't naturally get crops. So you don't mm-hmm. get carbohydrate. You know, yeah. A lot of the, the Maasai actually drain the neck of beasts of cattle. The um, yeah. they have high protein you know so i think that what we found was is that and obviously different metabolisms do different things but i think for me in general terms if you're going to have puddings or sweet things you know make sure it's just sweet or just fatty but don't mm-hmm. do both so this is why things like muffins oh my god they're just mm-hmm. sitting on a plate donuts have an amazing habit you eat them up into tiny blocks and then they reform around your waist it's amazing <laughs> they have this amazing capacity you know exponentially growing yeah. but i would argue though nick with sugar i mean there's so mm. many health toxins and issues around sugar as well and wasn't there a study with the mice as well though with the cocaine and the sugar and they were it was a similar effect on them i think as well right so but i think it's a bigger thing than that i think you're right so i'm not saying go and eat sugar what i'm saying is generally though <laughs> so i try and just have one square of chocolate now, if you, but I also know if I was an addictive character, I say to patients, just don't have it in the house because you're never going to have one square of chocolate. You're going to be tempted yeah. into all of it. You know, yeah. look at how your mindset is around eating. I think that you have to remember that when we're stressed, it's very mm-hmm. interesting. This is true. When we're stressed, we look for comfort food, so we tend to look for sugar, right? Because mm-hmm. we need sources of energy. That's what mm-hmm. stress is about. Mobilize energy, mobilize it in order to run. You know, prime mm-hmm. yourself for healing and ready. Mm-hmm. So that's true, and that's why men particularly who are very stressed they tend to get the big bellies and the stick like legs but that's the distribution of fat that happens with cortisol and that is so much more dangerous to your health than just distributing it over your body so they're the ones i really have a go at about stress because Mm -hmm. they're storing all that inside their abdomen and it chokes Mm -hmm. their organs as well so that's you Mm -hmm. know and i think that i would say look generally just reduce your carbs you don't need it we're not doing enough in life Mm -hmm. to warrant you eating lots of carbs and offset it somewhere in the day if you do get tempted but I mean, I don't think it's rocket science. All of these diet books, really, whatever they are, they're glorified changes in calorie intake. Mm-hmm. And they suit you. My father-in-law loves the 5-2 diet. Why? Because he's not a control eater. So he'd rather go with nothing for two days mm-hmm. and have three days of, you know, that suits him. For me, yeah. if I have nothing to eat in the day, I'm literally falling mm-hmm. over by the time I get to four o'clock in the afternoon. I can't do that. And I, have to, I burn too many calories with my patients in the day. So I've got mm-hmm. to have something. But I have learned not to have any snacks in my drawer i can't just mm-hmm. reach for them when i want to nibble you know i have three mm-hmm. meals a day mm-hmm. pretty much mediterranean diet fairly mm-hmm. low carbs but i can't be without carbs i mean we know that i mean i need even if i go for a workout i've got to have had them somewhere in the last 24 mm-hmm. hours or i'm just mm-hmm. you know, it's like carrying a log yeah um <laughs> so i think it's knowing yourself 
self-regulation. By the way, just be clear, I was an incredibly fat kid. I just, you should know. Really? I was really Are you eating the donuts? My mum, I liked food. She fed me too, but she loved me too much. <laughs> but, and I had to lose it when I stopped my rugby career. But then I turned it all to muscle and whatever. But for certainly till I was 14. So I know what it's like to have to lose weight. And also how it felt. I was the fat kid. You know, mm-hmm. and I think deep down, I fear going back to that. I'm very honest about it. I think, you know, I, mm-hmm. even now, if I enter a room of people I don't know, I'm kind of back there feeling self-conscious, throwing my shirt away from my moods, you know, all those little behaviours. And I get that. And I think probably mm-hmm. I never want to go back there. No, it's tough. And we're in a society where we need dopamine because we're stressed because it suppresses dopamine. So if you look at where, you know, all the coffee shops, does anyone occur to you why there's so many coffee shops? Well, because it stimulates the dopamine pathways. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the more, you know, there is. So we're drifting from coffee to sugar to vape to fags to food to coffee to sugar to vape to fags. To, and we keep doing that. Why? Because we exist in an artificially elevated level of dopamine. And then we're all told we should be happy all the time. Sorry, <laughs> not true. Not going to happen. You know, nah. Being happy is a lucky thing. And it's actually what you achieve by growing and achieving things. It's the process. It's, you know, so that's why so many billionaires, they make the money. And they've got it and they're happy that they're getting there. But actually they sit there and then go, mm, what now? You know, mm-hmm. because they're not achieving it's moving forward. Yeah. It's kind of very like, you know, some of the Jordan Peterson stuff I quite like. I think he's actually right. I think humans need to have meaning and purpose, connectedness. And just very quickly, I think, which is worth it, COVID was fascinating because it did to us mm-hmm. the three things mm-hmm. that humans most fear, abhor and run away from. Mm-hmm. One, isolation. Horrendous. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. We're social animals. We needed to survive. You know, people mm-hmm. die very quickly if you keep them isolated. Mm-hmm. That's why we torture people with it. Secondly, is uncertainty. Now, that's different from anxiety. Anxiety mm-hmm. is worrying about a set specific task or thing that you've got to do and all the worries around it. Uncertainty mm-hmm. means you have to worry about everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you don't know where the danger is. So in a sense, you have to be, and I found that I couldn't read things. I wasn't taking things in. I was just distracted all the time. But mm-hmm. the third that I think is the most sinister Mm-hmm. is actually not the stress that you're in, but it's mm-hmm. the perceived inability to change it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in my view, that's what gives people cancer. And that's the research that I've done. Because it's the trapped marriage, crap boss, I've been passed over, nothing in my mm-hmm. life is changing, I can't move up the hierarchy no matter how much I, you know, how much I can't get the chance I need. Mm-hmm. And that, and again, in rat studies, it kills them, it gives them cancer in a month. If you wow. put rats in cages next to cats, they'll wow. get cancer in a month. Wow. If you give them escape cages, literally only a meter apart, they don't get the cancer and they don't get fat and they don't lose their hair because wow. their perception is they can do something about it. Any type of cancer in particular? No, I think the the kind of hormonally related ones, so probably prostate, breast, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can't say this across the board, but you don't really get cancer under 40, right? You know, we really don't. We get the childhood cancers. You might know somebody 39, but in general terms, Mm-hmm. You know, because genetically, we're not determined to get it before then. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you've got the epigenetic effect. So like I told you, the interleukins that are feeding mm-hmm. away at the pro you know, these. And the outcome is you get uncontrolled gene expression, mm-hmm. which leads to uncontrolled cellular expression. You know, it causes breast to do it. Why it causes, I, d- I don't know. Oh, God, if I did, I, you know, I wouldn't be here. I'd be billionaire having cured cancer but i think we're getting closer to realizing that people can have a much greater effect on cancer than they really think and it's not just about smoke even within smoking believe it or not mm-hmm. they never actually found could actually say a plus b so they could never prove that smoking caused cancer what was more interesting was that of the cohort that smoked and got cancer 
if you personality profiled them, they were all much more stressed people. They had mm-hmm. much higher anxiety levels, lower affect and mood. That's why they smoked, because they wanted the dopamine from the nicotine. But actually, the ones that, if you like, were guaranteed to get the cancer had the profile of smoking and being stressed, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I thought was much more interesting. Because our body's quite good at getting rid of crap. It's good Absolutely. at yeah. But I'm not That's saying it. everybody rush out and smoke 20 a day. But what I'm saying is, <laughs> you know, it's not quite as simple as you think it is. Yeah. And a bit of self-regulation, a bit of realizing that, you know, you have to put aside what you want now for later. Mm-hmm. It's a rule for life and everything. Money, food, you know, yeah. everything in moderation. I think if I had a diet, it's called everything in moderation, everybody. You know, it's what Granny always told us, isn't it? It's just, you know, mm-hmm. have a little bit of everything because it's all, but mm-hmm. we even know that meat isn't quite such a sin that we think it is. But yeah, if you're having 40 burgers a week, you're an idiot. Yeah. yeah. And then there's grass-fed meats, exactly. There's quality meat and then non-quality meat as well. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, do you have a favorite quote or piece of advice that has been a real game changer for you? Yeah. I've fun off lots. I've been so lucky to work with so many people. I'll tell you the first one, sadly, was a woman, and it was, it was only two years ago, who had pancreatic cancer. She died, sadly. She was a very, very big influence. She was a writer. I can't say she was, but she was a wonderful woman. And she lay there in her bed in the clinic in London, and she said to me, Nick, I've realized that health is a crown worn by the well that only the sick see wow which really as you can tell it's never left me it's a crown worn by the well that only the sick can see wow powerful isn't it and from a dying woman which is very sad and she kind of didn't more than anybody she didn't deserve to really she's had so much more to give but anyway and i think for my own personal lessons i went to go and play rugby in new zealand and i met an amazing coach who said to me, you're a good player, but you're not a great player. And I was quite, I was into public school. I was full of myself. I was, you know, big muscle, big muscle. And I thought I was the bee's knees. And I went out there and he said, would you like to be a good player? I said, of course I would. He said, well, you're a two-dimensional player. He said, what you do, you do really, really well. Mm-hmm. But you won't step outside your sticky zone. The All Blacks, I'm not, wasn't an All Black, but the Kiwis are famous for this. Mm-hmm. And he said, you went to a posh school, didn't you? So I said, yes. He said, public school. I said, yes. He said, the problem with them is that they breed a fear of failure. And mm-hmm. it's true. You're castigated for it. So every time you fail, you fear it because mm-hmm. you, somebody gives you, oh, you know, you dropped this. Oh, you did that. Oh, you idiot. You know. mm-hmm. So if I had to have the tattoo, it would be what he said to me then, which was your fear of failure is mm-hmm. greater than your will to win. Mm-hmm. And it flipped my head for wow. days. And he said, if I can help you change that, you'll be a great player. But if you don't, he said, you might as well be back on the plane home. Mm-hmm. And I think he did. I didn't, I didn't become a I broke my back. But I grew more in that season, not only in, as a player, but also as a, a person, mm-hmm. because it taught me to see really what he was right. And we see that here at the trading floor, sadly, there's that posh people who go to posh schools, interestingly, they're not on the trading floor because they have too much to lose. They mm-hmm. won't take risk. Mm-hmm. Because you're taking risk is potential failure and failure is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of schools saying to kids, oh, you know, we teach our kids to embrace failure. But they don't because they don't set up a culture. And that's what was different in this training camp was mm-hmm. that every time I did something that I tried, I was in my sticky zone trying to learn a new thing mm-hmm. and I fluffed it. The whole line would just reset. Nothing was said. There was no comment. There was no sighing. There was no rolling of the eyes. They just mm-hmm. reset. They knew you were in your growing zone. Mm-hmm. Now, if you got to five times, somebody would come out of the queue and say, hey, look, 
maybe if you did it like this, and do that, this is what I find works for me. And I had to be big enough to take it from it. So yeah, okay, you know, that's yeah. five times I fluffed it, I'm not doing. But then what we realized was this massive reciprocity between us. We didn't see each other as competitors to be beaten. We were just healthy rivals with different tasks to do who might have a skill set that we could share. Very rare you find that in cultural environments. And in no better place do you learn it in team sport because you will be found out by either your playing mm -hmm. friends or the crowd. They will see yeah. it. Yeah. And that's why, to me, team sport is so important because it teaches you to be resilient. It teaches you to face, to not get in the team, to raise your game, to get back yeah. in the team, fight for your place. You know, mm -hmm. respect your others. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, I think we're brewing a society where we see other people as people to be beaten all the time. It's about me, my career, me, I, I, very I orientated, mm -hmm. fed by social media. But as a result, we're becoming more disconnected because we see our neighbor, our worker, a friend mm -hmm. as a competitor, not a sort of healthy rival by which to judge the bar. It's really unhealthy. I went back to my old school. I saw this all the time. It's a very academic school. It's become intensely mm -hmm. aggressive. There's a kind of almost menace in the air. Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's happening in America. I think you know the elitism is awful. So on the West Coast, some of these guys are you know the high IQs on the West Coast, etc. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think they're very nice to each other. Well, it's so competitive as well. And interesting with failure, I had an interesting story at the weekend. I was attending an event. It was about the founder of Spanx, which I don't know mm. if you'll know, but many, yeah, many absolutely, yeah, you know, some of my patients wear them. It's quite something to get them off, but you know. <laughs> Exactly. But it was very interesting because they said that, you know, she was the youngest female billionaire at one stage. She's been beaten now by one of the Kardashians. However, at the dinner table every night, six o'clock, the father would ask his children, so her included, what did you fail at today? And it was required to have something. So you, you're programmed yourself every day to fail at something because then you learn from it. And it means that you've progressed and you've tried something that you're not good at and you've got out of your comfort zone. And I found that so fascinating. And I, one of my mentor told me once, he said, you have to get out of your comfort zone every day. And I was like, oh, if I can get out once a week. But even just having that in the back of your mind, thinking, okay, what am I going to do today to push myself out of the comfort zone? And, you know, you see it just programs the brain differently. So this is really interesting. Also, your Absolutely. And I think in a separate way, it does away with laziness, you know, because it's kind of like you can walk along, oh, I could tell that lady she's just dropped her wallet. But, ah, you know, but of course, also it's a social interaction. I've got to, she might think I'm a weirdo. You know, all those things you're telling yourself in your head instead of just being helpful. And also just, you've got to bend down, pick it up. I'm a bit late. And I'm, you know, but it just says, you know what, I could do that. But actually, this would be the kind thing to do. Mm -hmm. I very quickly, somebody else, somebody said to me, and I've extended it off to lots of my pupils, people, whatever, is when somebody dissected and broke down the elements of kindness and mm -hmm. why it shows such a high level of intelligence, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And he said, as far as he could tell, he said, kindness it shows three types of intelligence. One is the empathy to know that somebody needs something from you or mm -hmm. of you. Mm -hmm. Two was self-awareness that you are empowered to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And the third was self-sacrifice because, mm -hmm. you know, you may have to miss the bus to help the old lady or whatever, however you turn that. But mm -hmm. it was so interesting to have that broken down into its elements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people go, oh, you know, kindness. It's like, well, tell a kind, what is kindness? You know, and you say, mm -hmm. so you now say, well, look, this is what it shows mm -hmm. is actually your intelligence mm -hmm. across three domains mm -hmm. that you previously hadn't thought about. That's why it's real. And kids get that at a surprisingly early age. Mm -hmm. really do it's extraordinary so if nothing else it's not mm -hmm. just you're kind we're also telling you you know you're clever you know mm -hmm. and they go oh great you know because i coached for eight years doing rugby to juniors and i found this very helpful and an old coach said to me again he said don't praise the outcome praise the work put in correct yeah 
and become and the most successful still, people. We're only interested, did you get the medal? Because what happens with kids, interestingly, it's about how kids perceive what you're saying, not what you're saying. And of course, what they do is you say, oh, my little Einstein, well done, you got 100%. Mm-hmm. They now live in fear of losing that label. So mm-hmm. anything less than that mm-hmm. is unacceptable. And then they get anxious about it. So any grade less than that. So that's why you must never, if you can, but even if they get a C, so long as they've put 100% yeah. into it, then the yeah. C is good enough. Yeah. And so that correlates really nicely into also the, the point before around failure, right? So if you just focus on the outcome, they think they always have to get that grade as well. And, and I've heard this from a lot of high performers as well, that their parents or whatever growing up, it was all, you know, you put in a lot of effort, well done, you did it. And it was more about the effort put in yeah. than actually the end result. And you tried your best. And that is what's applauded. So it can be even more subtle in that my father is a huge influence on me and I adore him. But I remember doing to my daughter one day, Mm-hmm. what my dad I now realize used to do to me and I used to ring up one day and say dad got an A star in this essay I'm really proud he goes son that's amazing he was full of adulation mm-hmm. but he would then say well read it to me read it to me so I'd, so I'd read it to him and, he'd, and then he'd go just in paragraph brilliant he said brilliant but just in <laughs> paragraph three you know he could have said this and said and I thought god yet again he's never actually just said amazing because well, of course you know he's a post degree whatever I was 15 he's applying all that and I realized one day when my daughter rang to do exactly the same thing. And I went, and she said, what? I said, oh, nothing. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm about to do it. Because <laughs> the perception of the child is nothing you do is good enough. Uh-huh. That's how children perceive it, which an adult doesn't by any means mean. Yeah. But it's actually how the child reads it. And I yeah. realized I did the same to my daughter. Yeah. And I thought I saw it as like I'm helping her improve to be better. But that okay. actually translates as nothing she's done so far is quite good enough. That's mm-hmm. awful. Yeah, and so many parents do it and have received it. I mean, I had a very strict father that was always about correcting things as well. And so you grow up with that thing that no matter what you do is never enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Never yeah. make perfection the enemy of the good. That's a good line too. And I think it's, you know, <laughs> that's what we as parents want all the time. It's just that it's unrealistic. But that causes stress. And these children, and I'm not joking, that's the sort of stress as an early child which will give you asthma. Let's be very clear. Mm-hmm. It will give them anxiety to sort of girls, anorexia. They can't control their environment enough because they don't think they're performing, so they control anything exactly. Yeah. So the association of self, they do it through their body, mm-hmm. and it's poorly mm-hmm. treated. And then what happens is they get sent back to that environment either they get out of the clinic. So some people just need parentectomies, as I call it. Mm-hmm. But you know, parents don't necessarily know they're doing it. We're all parents. We're all fallible. Yeah. But I think if we all, as parents, said, you know, I'm not doing this. What do you do with your kids? You know, how often do you really get people saying, you know, how do you approach this? Because, like, you know, you're expected to know. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and it yeah. only breeds liars, hiders, and fakers. And that's very sad. And we mm-hmm. see that in the financial industry a lot. Guys who, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, they're putting off a whole good thing going on. But actually, because they don't know, they don't let you know. And they don't ask. And then they have to lie. And they fake it because they don't know the answer. And that leads to all sorts of... It happens everywhere to a certain extent, but I think it's particularly in those sorts of environments, which are very competitive because you can't I, share, yeah. you can't be vulnerable, mm-hmm. you can't be open to emotional responses. Mm-hmm. So we make people into sort of automata, which I thought was an anachronism of the 80s, but hey, it still seems to be mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. It's still there. Yeah. I'd like to touch on breathing. We talked about a bunch of different aspects, but you've developed a device to assist people with breathing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I'm really very excited about it. At the moment, we've called it Exhalo, which is all about the out-breath. But no, nobody had produced a piece of kit that would actually measure breathing. There are certain things, Fitbits, that will take average respiration time. Mm -hmm. But this will give you real-time 
input into your breathing pattern and also mm -hmm. your breathing rate. Mm -hmm. And it goes on your belt and you don't even know it's there. It talks to your phone. Mm -hmm. It's not another Fitbit because that's boring. You know, the worried wealthy, as I call them, you know, who've got everything and they're just obsessing and then they get more stressed <laughs> and then they get more stressed and it gets breathing. No, this is, I think, the answer to an awful lot of problems because what it will do is give you feedback all the time mm -hmm. about where your breathing is, therefore where your brain is, and therefore, mm -hmm. why, you know, why am I getting stressed? And so all it does, it will buzz at you, tingles, doesn't buzz, mm -hmm. it tingles and speaks to Where your is it? On your waistband. Mm -hmm. So it will go on the inside of your pants. With women, it will go on, they can go on the inside of their bra. It will go mm -hmm. on to the inside line of the bra. Now, I'd love to have them put into all bras. I think it'd be fantastic because then people can get, you know, feedback all the time. But also it will check if they're expanding their chest and ribs and so on. Got a very good prototype. It works. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm got an amazing team and the great thing is the medical board behind it at imperial are very excited because we can also can put it into lots of studies mm -hmm. we're going to hopefully do it there's a big bank who wants me to make loads of them and give them out because we want to move away from screening people's health when kind of it's too late you know by the time yeah. you need to go and have a test or a scan you're already sick preventative health in my view is the way forward and that's catching on which is good but i think that if you could get everybody wearing these in large cohorts and it was all anonymized data you could say well look why is this particular group of people four mm -hmm. of them stressed why is the whole department stressed is this just a terrible manager why is the whole bank stressed in which case you know we've got a bad culture and also say to people because individually the phone will say look you've had a particularly tense day here we're friends with all the meditation people because we're linking them because actually their attention rate in things like headspace and calm is actually not very good you know it's kind mm. of three months and they do so what we'd say is look you've had a really bad day today particularly don't just do the breathing go and do your yoga or your whatever because actually you need a more powerful de-stress mm. agent but also it can be a coach you know like that lady with the boss you know so when yeah. what happens at three o'clock blimey you know yeah. sometimes we found in a trader here that monday mornings he shouldn't trade at all sadly because his marriage was in meltdown and mm. he, he the stress levels he came in with on monday Mm -hmm. were because he was unhappy at home so we helped him mm -hmm. manage that you know so that's the great thing so it's non-specific we're not peering into your world but we're just saying hey dude and it's a nudge mm -hmm. that's the really clever thing about this it's, it's it just vibrates a little bit mm -hmm. you know you're breathing wrong yeah and you know how to do it. so we teach you to breathe with the app and we teach you how to do it right and we teach you how to recognize it lots of lovely content about why it's bad for you but most importantly and you'll be able to gamify it so you can put it in your hand it has an oximeter on it, which will measure your pulse rate. So if we say, look, you're about to have, you know, a panic attack, or you're about to do those presentations you really hate, you know that you blush, you know that mm -hmm. you lose your way, and you lose it, and of course you become less articulate, and your memory mm -hmm. goes. So go into the loo, put it in your hand, and mm -hmm. you breathe your pulse rate down, which is very mm -hmm. powerful. And mm -hmm. then four brain switch. And they literally, I've got a couple of comedians who've been using it, and they said, oh, my God, I mean, I'm just like this, because now I know that my yeah. brain's opening up. And you prevent oh. the stage fright. What's the right way to breathe, Nick? So many people learn from me, especially women we were talking about before as well, don't breathe properly. What is the right way to breathe and how can you correct it if you breathe from your upper chest, for example? So really easy. Put one hand, we call it high lows. So you put one hand on your chest, you put one mm -hmm. hand on your belly. Yeah. Ladies particularly tend mm -hmm. to spend more time holding their tummies in because they don't want mm -hmm. them to go out over the top. You know, we all wear why. But the problem with that, if you hold your tummy and you invert your breathing pattern, which is the same as Edwardian women, and that's why they fainted all the time, okay? Because they were wearing corsets, <laughs> corsets. which held their breath, <laughs> hyperventilated. So when somebody did upset them, they all had the vapors, and it was all like this. Yeah, but that was real. It wasn't just histrionics. It was real breathe, yeah. pulmonary chemistry at bay, and all because they had to have tidy waists. But anyway, so first of all, let it all hang out. Just accept the truth. 
it's bigger than it should be, you know, <laughs> and you've had babies and that's amazing, but you probably left the six pack behind, maybe, you know, so let it hang out and then breathe it down, imagining your tummy is like a bag and you paralyze your upper hand, the chest. So you don't, if your chest heaves, if your breasts come up underneath your chin, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Okay. What should happen is your belly should come out. That's why Buddha is always depicted with a big belly. Mm-hmm. And then you take a long, slow breath, nose only, in and out. Send it into your abdomen, make a big belly. What you're experiencing is your diaphragm descending and pushing the belly out. That's why the belly is important. Long and slow. Generally, the rule is five seconds in, seven seconds out. There are lots of variations. Pranayama, four, four, four. You know, they're all, they're all there to achieve more of it. But most of the time. Do five sets of 10 breaths a day. So it's mm-hmm. 10 in the morning, 10 mid-morning, lunch and so on. As long and slow diaphragm breathing. By five, you'll often hear your tummy gurgling, which tells me that your vagus nerve switched on and your digestion's come back on. So your whole nervous system's in a rest digest. It's quite reliably five. It's weird. I do it with patients all the time. You can hear and it's <laughs> engaging. We'll cure your reflux and your digestion problems overnight. Certainly, any of you who get a bit of IBS, honestly, if you keep it, but you've got to do it daily for two weeks. Mm-hmm. More five importantly, times a day yeah, five, five times, five a, times day. a day, just 10 breaths. That's it. You don't have to be lying down. It's better if you can, but don't worry. You can do it sitting at mm-hmm. desk. Mm-hmm. If you catch yourself breath holding, you know, yawning or sighing, mm-hmm. those are the three indicators that you've mm-hmm. gone back into naughty breathing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put on your on the top of your computer. Breathe, breathe, breathe. Check yeah. every ten minutes. Say, am I breathing regularly? I have this from something else. There you yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> no. yeah. They're born for breathers, and you know, use your outlook. Get it to ping every fifteen minutes. Check your breathing. Check, even with a sniff, if you breathe and your chest comes up, you're doing it wrong. If you mm-hmm. breathe and your tummy comes out, mm-hmm. you're in good breathing. Mm-hmm. Get the coherent breathing going. Five times. That's such a good hack. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to talk about human performance, Nick. I've been having such a great talk. (laughs) I realize that it's getting a bit late now, but you're all about optimizing and improving, but you have high performers amongst your clientele. Hmm. What are some of the strategies and tools that you recommend to them when they say, you know, I want to have the better mental capability? We talked about the breathing and things as well. Is there a sort of standard recommendation that you say or how do you assess and give advice for high performance? I think the simple and probably not very fair answer is I really do treat them like any other patient in the sense mm-hmm. that they're people, they have a story, they have childhoods, they mm-hmm. have high performing lives. And if you actually look at whether it's Elton John, whether it's elite athlete, all black, high level corporate athlete, as I call them, you know, mm-hmm. so their functions, the two things that happen mostly is people are jealous of you. The air becomes thin at the top. It's not very nice. Mm-hmm. People kind of want to see you fall, and you know that. And mm-hmm. getting up there isn't the answer. It's staying there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's repeat performance, actually, is what I'm more interested in. So, okay, you've done that. That's great. But now we need to keep you there. Yeah. And actually be accepting. You don't want to be at your peak all the time. You want to peak at certain. That's what we do with athletes. We only peak them when they need to perform. Otherwise, they're just mm-hmm. constantly exhausted. Teach mm-hmm. them that. And the personalities of those people tends to be type A, go-getters, mm-hmm. obligatory, very often guilt sufferers, etc driven find what their demon is everybody has Mm -hmm. a demon i have lost them they are what drives you and there's nothing to be right but turn it into a thing that worries you into a thing that makes you want it more Mm -hmm. but also learn to tame it you know Mm -hmm. there's nice nick there's nasty it's yin and yang i mean the ancients knew this you know Mm -hmm. but there's kind of nasty nick nice nick 
mm-hmm. and you keep them at bay and keep them at balance all the time. And sometimes mm-hmm. a bit of nastiness is a good thing. It's what gives you ambition. It's whatever. But learn to control it. Don't let it kind of turn into anger and emotional liability. Get hold of your sleep. You can't always have friends when you're at the top. Because again, people are jealous of you, etc. But also, if you're in a high-level ranking position in a the company, then you're going to sack them. You're going to fire them. You're going to tell them they're crap at their job. You know, so you lose your. So the higher you go up there, the thinner the air gets. That's what it yeah. is. So really, it doesn't matter who you are: singer, world shooting expert, gymnast, tennis player. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The issues are all the same. And by the way, of course, the other thing is if you're trying to get those net gains, as they always call it, it's either mm-hmm. drugs, which sadly mm-hmm. has crept into all sports. We're kidding ourselves that it hasn't. Or it's those little extra gains that you squeeze out. And most coaches are up to that. But I find a lot of it's emotional. So find out what's going at home. You know, are they constantly? You look at a lot of athletes and players, they will generally wobble when they either get married or have a child. That's just mm-hmm. because they're being emotionally tethered. It's nothing mm-hmm. to do with, you know, and it's lovely. And they, and they soon fall into that. Federer is very good about being married and you know, he finds it an anchor. Other players will find that it's a kind of emotional hassle, if you like, or element of their life that they previously didn't have to worry about that they now have to slot. And of course, wives will ring and say, you've been away three months and you know the kids aren't seeing you, know, also, you know, which you don't get if you're not married. And, and it's the mm-hmm. same for married women players, female players, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. They've got husbands. They've got husbands that need them, want them, you know, want them around. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what's the point kind of thing? And mm-hmm. there also should be enormous source of support and I had a lovely guy in today actually who's a very successful and he said you know his great saying is behind every great man is a surprised woman which I thought was quite funny you know <laughs> well he's still got his wife his partner let's be clear about this mm-hmm. and gay couples again you tend to find that they slot mm-hmm. into those roles and one mm-hmm. supports one goes out there because on the whole you can't have two alpha characters all the time mm-hmm. you know they don't clash and you've got to find mm-hmm. that balance in your life whether it's relationships and otherwise and it's helping them so I think it's being a confidant Genuinely, mm-hmm. you know, I am unbelievably discreet about my whoever my famous patients are. I don't really care. It doesn't matter. But I'm discreet about every patient. So they've got to mm-hmm. trust you. Because yeah. uh, they know you can go and make 50 grand from telling somebody who's going to go off his game or the queen has got piles. You know, <laughs> that stuff makes headlines. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So it's trust. It's not getting phased by what you see. It's experience. But I think it's knowing that actually wherever you are, in whatever domain, if you're at the top of it, it gets harder, not easier. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing ever great was easy. It's, mm-hmm. it's the way of things. And they can't keep it up for too long. You've got to explain mm-hmm. to them, you know, you are going to peak. Even CEOs mm-hmm. probably have a life of two to four years in one mm-hmm. job. But expect that and accept it. That's the way of the world. And don't get anxious about it. Don't over-control people. And I think form connections. You know, go and speak to other CEOs. Don't always mm-hmm. see them. As, you know, this is what you see gradually. A lot of them quietly have other friends who are heads of companies that they trust and that they're not going to get rid of secrets and or they're in different industries and they go and share that stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, don't think you have to put the burdens of the world on your shoulder because mm-hmm. you're going to buckle. doesn't matter how good or intelligent you are, you will buckle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, Ariana Huffington's a great example of that. You know, she buckled. Mm-hmm. And then she's discovered this whole new world yeah, particularly in the health world about, you know, Thrive was all about that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I'm amazing, but I can't juggle three children and a daughter that wants me and a husband that does or doesn't. And I'm a single mom and I haven't got that support. You know, where do I tether myself? You've got to find mm-hmm. the balance. It's not always easy. But ask people. Never be afraid to ask. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are. Yeah. It's a weakness. Such wise words. Closing up shortly, but I'd love just in the longevity space, Nick, what are some of the trends that you find most exciting that you see coming out of this longevity and improved health span? I'd like to see people being content to get old. 
And what I mean by that is don't, don't mean give in to being elderly. That's a very different thing. I'd like to have society stop telling. I reached 50 two years ago and I got so sick of my friend. Oh, mate, you know, <laughs> beginning of the end, you know what it's like. You know, everything's going to go south. And, so, and I said, well, actually, you know, I've stayed quite healthy. I've stayed quite slim. I eat well. I sleep well. I've got a lovely wife who's amazing. And I've got two happy kids. Hopefully they're not taking drugs. That's what I can judge it by so far. You know, don't get complacent. But actually, I, and I feel mentally. 30 might still work out a level i'm quite proud of so why should i give in to this concept that being a certain number is how i should feel your biological age is quite frankly is how fit and well you are and how long you've done that for i think that it's very difficult to tell teenagers oh you know don't smoke because at 70 who gives a toss about being 70 when you're that age you know yeah i think it's a great tragedy of the world that you lose youth in return for wisdom Who's rich? Who is out there who's rich wouldn't wouldn't (laughs) give up their wealth for youth? That's the really interesting one, I think. But I think just have some balance and realize your body's quite good at looking after itself to certain extent. Just don't abuse it. It's a miracle that you've been given. And don't assume, by the way, there's no correlation between age and pain. Amazing how many people say, What do you expect from your 70s? Well, you know, pain and nope, Mm. it's not correlated at all. Mm -hmm. You don't lose performance. Again, marathon Mm -hmm. runners, they compared 70 year old, five year. Blocks mm-hmm. and they showed that actually 75 year olds showed the best year on year increase in fitness and speed for year on year marathons. Wow. Even better than 25 year olds. So it's just rubbish that you kind of lose everything. And we keep telling you, because don't forget, what sells a product is to scare the bejeebas out of you. Yeah. yeah. You're going to lose 10% of your cognitive ability in the next 10 years. Like, well, that's not really been proven yet. And then how do you judge it? And what are you measuring? You know, but yeah. hey, but if you take this vitamin, you know, it's going to cure your brain problem. And so, you know, hoop yourself on one side of the thing, but take this great product, which, by the way, is a load of crap and yeah. isn't going to make any difference. You're going to do better to move all the time. You know, eat well. Yeah. Be a good lover. You know, men, if they don't ejaculate regularly, get mm-hmm. prostate cancer you know mm-hmm. don't use it or lose it you know we don't like to put it like that but that's the truth yeah. so that doesn't mean you dive on top of your wife every five weeks but you know mm-hmm. don't give up on it keep your relationship happy mm-hmm. keep attractive for each other mm-hmm. you know it's amazing how i've got a friend who's put on five stone and now says his wife is ninja. i said well yeah, and you're surprised <laughs> you know you're sweaty you've got a big belly you're panting mm-hmm. all the time you know mm-hmm. Have some self respect. What I don't blame her, and you'd be the first to be going and pinching her bum, saying, "Oh, darling, got a few, you know, few saddle bags there." I mean, like, yeah, how's that okay? Uh-huh. You know, it's a partnership, and have relationships. I mean, all the evidence shows. I'm very like, I love my friends, I love spending time with them. They can be my mm-hmm. biggest source of critic as well as my biggest, you know, friend. and family. Look at everybody who goes into nursing homes. The reason they die quickly is because you take them out of the family. Yeah. You don't see Asian women nearly as much in nursing homes. Why? Because mm. they're kept in the family. Yeah. And, they're and they don't go to Lali either. <laughs> exactly. You know, so yeah. I think, you know, yeah, relationships, massive. Mm-hmm. Don't become too self-obsessed. I think some of this stuff is getting a bit narcissistic, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fillers, okay. You know, Botox, okay. But I mean, you know, laughter lines on a woman's face are her they're everything and i think men are much less bothered by this stuff than women are i promise you i think, mm. I think all women think men you know and they do it, other women do it for other women which is sad a lot of the time you know mm. who cares but i think it's and everybody ages differently yeah. sun is the biggest ager of all time i think 96 percent of skin aging is actually sun mm-hmm. and yeah. then stress so mm-hmm. you know and i think it's sad that we're seeing 25 year olds 
Botoxing and using fillers, I think it's just it's how they yeah. need to. So, you know, I think as long as you, what you're doing is kind of natural and you're sustaining things and you're using products that sustain natural processes, I think it's fine. I get a bit worried about some of the testosterone stuff that I'm seeing going on in kind of over 60 year olds. And I think we're going to see, sadly, a very big increase in cancers if we're not careful, uh, just mm-hmm. as estrogens can cause it. You know, I think we need to be careful and, and find time, you know, to do things that you mm-hmm. find fun. These things have a much bigger outcome on anything yeah. that you can do with surgery or, you know. Mm-hmm. The art of saying yeah. no to make time for things that you actually want to do, right? Nick, for my listeners who are interested to understand osteopathy more and optimizing yeah. their health, what online resources or books would you recommend they start with? It so depends on kind of what angle. I mean, I'm a big fan of Gabo Mate and people like that. I think mm-hmm. that his stuff is great. I'm a big fan of the Tosex book, When the Body Says No. No, sorry, The Body Keeps the Score. I'm so sorry. The Body, body Keeps no the Score, yeah. Gab- mm-hmm. yeah. And it's not for everybody with trauma, but I think it's a wonderful, he verbalizes it in a very good way. There are so many good books out there. I think, I think also just read for pleasure. You know, I read mm-hmm. a lot of fabulous stuff that can be life-changing that isn't kind of technical you know you learn mm-hmm. things from good writers teach you stuff mm-hmm. through certain you know, subliminally then yeah exactly yeah mm-hmm. so i think it's for my book i mean god i must have read i think i read 37 books in a month or so at one stage and it was just too I'm much impressed. well <laughs> yeah i mean a lot of it's skimmery because a lot of it's science i find like i've got much more interested in going out and finding lovely nuggets of really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Like one of the things I learned was, you know, only hollow organs feel pain. And I went, oh my God, I don't think I've ever been taught that. And every wow. doctor I speak doesn't know. And it's true. Mm-hmm. Because you don't need to have a high level of vigilance around organs that don't have contact with the outside world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that sort of stuff I just found in Nuggets. an article somewhere. Yeah. And you've retained it as well. Amazing. Nick, where can people learn more about what you're up to on social media or websites? <laughs> I am a university, ter- I'm probably my age, but I am terrible at social media. I do have an Instagram post, etc. My website is really Macy, which is actually the Centre for Physical Medicine, which is just off Harley Street. And I'd love you all, not because I want to make money from it, but I'd love you to actually read my book because I think it's good. I don't mean that mm-hmm. arrogantly. I spend a lot of heart time doing it. Can you tell them the name of the book and where yeah, they can find the, it? The Meaning of Pain. Uh-huh. In Italy, it's called Our Heart, was it Our Bodies Speak to Us, which is actually much more poetic. And apparently it's better. So whoever translated me is, is more <laughs> passionate. But I think it's kind of why we have and it links a lot of the societal stuff. It explains mm-hmm. it, I hope, in a way that doesn't get me trolled, because that happens. You know, you people don't like how you're putting things. But just listen to what I'm saying. Don't jump on it. I think Touchwood, I haven't had too much of that. But I think that's really important. And I'm quite proud of it. And I think it will help people. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good reading. I put quite a lot of good bibliography in there for people to read if they want to. It slightly depends on the subject. Sure. But, Very helpful. Thank you, Nick. And then any final ask or recommendation or parting message for my audience? Yeah. Look after your health because Mm -hmm. it may sound cliched, but I spend too much time in my life helping people who wish they had done things differently. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take an awful lot. It doesn't mean you have to be this purging paragon of a person you know you just have to be observant of certain things but it's kind of about how you balance your life generally if you live well and you need it then your relationships are good too and that helps as well and i treat a lot of billionaires for example and the biggest single thing they know they can't buy is their health mm-hmm. so they're obsessed about it you know mm-hmm. and get very stressed about it and sometimes that's because they've worked ridiculously long hours and abused themselves in the past mm-hmm. to get there 
and now realize that perhaps that wasn't such a good idea. Probably just remember that saying, actually, health is a crown worn by the well and only seen by the sick. Mm -hmm. And don't take it for granted. Beautiful message to end with. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on today. Such a pleasure, pleasure. to have you. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Hey everyone, it's Claudia here. Before you take off, I hope you enjoyed the episode and learned as much as I did. If so, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on our next episodes. I would also love to hear what you thought, be it your favorite part, quote, or other feedback from the episode. So please leave a written review on Apple Podcasts or on social media. And if you think this episode will help someone in your own life, share it with them. Together, we can change our own lives and the lives around us for the better. Until next week, goodbye, farewell, and choose to live well. Yeah.